Hi there, this is Dominic Keating. I played Malcolm Reed, particularly on Star Trek Enterprise. And you're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents... Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that is way, way beyond the final frontier. I'm your host, Craig, and we are whoa, here to whoa, discuss... Whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. Craig, I'm here from the future to tell you that you can't do this podcast or terrible things will happen. Terrible things? You're from the future? What terrible things? Loads of terrible things. So terrible, you can't imagine them. For example? Awful, terrible things. Terrible, terrible things. Well, it seems to have gone well for me because I didn't have a guest for this podcast, but since you from the future has arrived, it is actually pretty good because it means I don't have to monologue about Strange New Worlds for two and a half hours. So it's actually fortuitous. But hello, Chris, if that is your real name from the future. It might be, it might not be. You might have changed your name in the future. You might be from a different timeline. Are you the Chris that has recorded the time travel podcast? No, I've still not recorded that. Still not recorded that. Where is the timeline? We found Aaron. We know when he did it. <laughs> I don't know when I've got to do it. And you will be doing it at yeah, some point. Still that happened. One day we'll answer that question. Let's continue and see if these terrible things happen. I feel like I need some practical examples of what horrible things will happen. That's the way I roll. I don't just believe everybody that claims to be from the future. If I did that, I'd never get anything done. <laughs> So, Strange New Worlds, we have a new Star Trek show that recently finished. It is centering on the adventures of Captain Pike, Spock, and the crew of the Enterprise prior to Kirk. So, without spoiling, what did you think of Strange New Worlds Season 1? I have really enjoyed this first season. It has been great to see Trek on form, this sort of episodic format coming back. I think it's a brilliant cast of characters. I wouldn't say it's a breath of fresh air because there's been some good stuff going on in Discovery and other shows, but this has been really, really good. I had high hopes for it and they were satisfied. I'm much the same. I don't think it's without its flaws and I don't think they necessarily completely nailed the episodic storytelling they did it, but I don't think they necessarily knew how to properly tell an episodic story. It feels like it's a bunch of writers that are used to writing serialised, trying to get their head around episodic. But we'll talk more about that in spoilers. Yeah, I love the characters. The cast are great. Visually, it's amazing. Some of the episodes are really good. Some maybe not so good, but we'll again talk about that. So yeah, good start for this show and good fun exploratory trek, which is Something we've kind of been missing since it returned in 2015, whenever Discovery came back. Or Discovery began, not came back. (laughs) You know what I mean. Discovery emerged. Yes, it (laughs) emerged. It willed itself into being. (laughs) Using the power of mushrooms. Yes, indeed. No mushrooms in this show that we know of. Unless some of the characters were on them. Maybe in the cooking. Yeah, maybe in a cookie. Maybe Pike cooks with mushrooms. Who knows? Anyway, shall we go to spoiler alert and get stuck into everything? Sure. Uh, uh, uh. 
I've structured this slightly differently because we normally do more serialized TV coverage, which means that it flows better in the way that there's a plot through line to focus on. So instead of that, I'm going to focus on character arcs because there was character arcs that carried through between episodes and sort of stitched the season together, made it feel more than just a bunch of things happening week on week, which is something you could criticise classic Trek for, the classic episodic Trek, as in the characters don't remember what happened last week and they probably should, Mm. but they don't. So there's a bit of a problem. You see two characters have a massive falling out one week and then the next week it's as if nothing ever happened. That's often happened on Voyager or Next Generation or even Deep Space Nine was guilty of it on occasion. And maybe this is guilty of it. We'll talk about it. So I want to start with Uhura because it's just a good starting point. She gets the first episode after the pilot to herself and her arc is about finding her place or sense of belonging. She's on the Enterprise, but she's not sure she wants to be there. She's just there because it's something to do and she wants to get away from a traumatic backstory. And we'll talk about the abundance of traumatic backstories that we're getting in these things because it's getting annoying. What did you think of Ahura's development over the course of the series, starting off as this naive cadet, not sure about her place in the universe and then where she ends up? Yeah, I I like this. It was good timing to have that initial episode with her because you're still getting introduced to the characters yourself. So seeing it through her eyes and getting her introduction as well as everyone else's kind of worked. I thought that was a smart move from what they did. Her finding her place, for me, it's a valid discovery and I think they did it pretty well. But obviously this program has that issue where we know where a lot of these characters end up. I wasn't watching it at any point thinking, what if she drops out of Starfleet? Because you sit there and go, well, at some point she's going to come to this realisation. We might not see it on the show, but at some point we know she comes to this realisation that the Enterprise is her home. I thought that slow build, especially through her different relationships, like speaking with Hammer and stuff like that and getting a sense of purpose, you've got to find your purpose and when you find that you'll be happy sort of thing. I thought that was a neat way of doing it and I enjoyed her character through the show as someone that has been an apprentice and has been picked on and whatnot and been through there and earned my stripes. I like to see the little bits and pieces that they got cadets to run through, the little gauntlets that they had them running through to get commissioned. Wear dress uniform to the captain's quarters and then no one else says that kind of stuff. Yes. Just to humiliate them a little bit. And that's part of something that the show does well that again we'll get to. The Neil Before Pod catchphrase, we'll get to it. <laughs> we will eventually discuss this. As much as we know how Ahura's going to end up because we've seen the original series so we know that she will be communications officer on the enterprise that's one of the issues i suppose with the prequel concept however star trek's never really been good at generating jeopardy for certain characters anyway one relevant example i can think of is funnily enough the second episode of enterprise which has a similar plot in it where hoshi in that show is concerned about whether she's fit for deep space whether she's fit for that job And she thinks about whether she's going to have to leave and go back to Earth where it's safe and where she's comfortable and all that stuff. And then at the end of the episode, she decides, nah, I belong here. I'll keep at it. And you know that that's ultimately going to be her decision because her name's in the credits. And you know that anybody whose name's in the credits is pretty safe. 
because that's just the way it is. So it's a bit similar to that, but it comes with the baggage of knowing how Uhura ends up. But I would say that even in that first episode that she was in, that focused on her, she gets more character development than the other version of Uhura gets in the original series throughout the entirety of the show. Oh, 100%. You can't deny that. She is getting a lot more development in this. And I'm wondering if that is one of the reasons that they've chosen her as an initial character to bring in one of the original series characters bring in because there's more they can play with with backstory and everything with her than they can do on some of the other characters perhaps yeah and i like the structure loose i won't say structure of her doing work experience in every department over the course of the season here's how you learn about engineering here's you learn about tactical here's you learn about this it obviously gives her an opportunity to interact with other characters that do those jobs but it also gives you a bit of insight into how that area of the ship works how those characters do their job that was a good structure as in making her almost the point of view character it's also a great excuse for why would you be taking the cadet on this mission or why would the cadet be involved in this it's all it's her time to be in tactical it's her time to be in engineering it's her time to be in this it's almost like in lower decks where rutherford was trying out all the jobs except that was more comedically charged (laughs) You're going to be in security. No, you're not. You're going to be in engineering. No, you're not. You're going to be here. Yeah. I guess it's just the cadet training program, the work experience program, isn't it? We're going to give you a good overview of what is involved on a starship. Even though your field is communications, you might have to do anything. Yeah, and as a cadet, she's still at the point where she can change her mind of what specialty she's wanting to go into, I guess. Yeah, plus you never know when the entire crew will be capacitated and you have to press buttons on a different console. <laughs> as is common in star trek it's got to happen at least once a season normally isn't it someone completely inappropriate needs to hit buttons that they wouldn't normally hit yeah you just see characters walking across the bridge to press buttons on different consoles because apparently you can't remote access consoles on a starship <laughs> starfleet technology is weird isn't it very you would think that you could just remote to the tactical console from the helm or something like that Opening up any desk or team viewer so that you can remote in. (laughs) Make sure you lock your screen before you go away. (laughs) Or your eight screens that you're working on. (laughs) Occasionally they do the transfer controls to this station or transfer helm to this station and stuff like that. You get that every once in a while, but then they seem to forget it every once in a while and start like running around the bridge hitting different buttons. Yeah, it's usually specifically transferring control to engineering when Mm. the the bridge is a no-go. That's usually it. But yeah, you never see someone at the tactical station just using it as the helm because the helm's not working or the helm console isn't working. Technology is what it is. But yeah, you talked about her connections with different characters like Hammer. I would say Hammer's her strongest connection, but I really like the way that she approached speaking with people because she got into this whole, I'm going to poke at you and try and get to know you. That's the way that she handles people. And that was really interesting. And then Hemmer's observation about you put up barriers because you don't want people to get close because you don't know if you'll be staying. So it's weird that she wants to get to know everybody, but she doesn't want to connect with them in meaningful ways. It's an interesting distinction there. Yeah, there was a bit of that. And it seemed to be noticed by Ortegas as well. In the second last episode, she was trying to be a bit more informal, but then it was the permission to speak freely and she was refusing to speak until she was given permission and all that. It was kind of played back. You've got to know us over all this time and you're still looking for permission to speak freely to me. Yeah, that's sort of a hammy way of throwing in that whole, she doesn't want to create connections, Mm. even though you've seen her throughout the season creating some connections. And I think one of the problems with this show actually is maybe there's not enough episodes to give you a real lived-in sense of character relationships because things become important for an episode or two and then it's resolved 
rather than you getting a bit more time to just let it breathe across the series. And that was true of, say, Hemmer's Funeral, for example, where Ortegas was giving a heartfelt eulogy and may not have ever interacted on screen. <laughs> if they did, it wasn't meaningful. I don't remember ever seeing them share a scene. I think they shared some scenes, but I don't think they had, had a one-to-one conversation off on a mission or something like that. I don't remember seeing anything like that, but they probably did share some scenes. I mean, you get the little impression from the dinners around the captain's table that there is that familiarity amongst the Enterprise crew. So I just take from that instantly that they all kind of know each other and are into particular rhythms and stuff okay maybe we've not had the time for the whole season for every character to have one-on-one with another character i suppose it's one of those things where you look next year and see who gets paired up in different scenes to see if they're trying different dynamics because you get that every once in a while in star trek or any other ensemble show where they're like oh it turns out we've never had this character just go off on a mission with this character before they're always paired up with someone else they like to rock it up every once in a while so maybe we get to see that. Obviously not with Hammer, but potentially with some of the other characters going on. But you sort of get that there. Episode number-wise, do you know what? I'm going to say they've probably nailed it perfectly for this first season, as far as episode numbers go. Because I've always got this worry, and it's with so many different shows, I'll either come out and say it was too short a season, or it was far too long a season, and you could tell the bit where it sagged in the middle. I think this season didn't really sag at points for me. There were oddball episodes that were in there, but it never particularly sagged for me. And I think if it had had a few more episodes, they would draw some stuff out, and I think it would have been a bit too much. I'm not saying we should have 26-episode seasons like we used to back in the day. That Mm. would be way too much. But I wonder if maybe 15 would have suited this show, because it's episodic anyway. The thing is, if you're watching Discovery and you don't like the main plot... You're stuck with it for 13 episodes or however long the season is. And that's a problem. So if you're bored by their main overarching story, then you're going to struggle. But with this, if you don't like one episode, then next week it will be totally different. So you don't really have that same kind of exhaustion you might have with a longer season on a more serialised narrative. I guess so. So it'd be, oh, well, that wasn't my favourite, but maybe next week I'll enjoy that. Who knows? And then you see next week's and then you make an opinion and so on. That would have given us a bit more time to... Just see the characters interacting in more casual settings. Things like O'Brien and Bashir playing darts and things like that. Just for the sake of playing darts. They often had scenes where they weren't doing anything plot relevant, really. They might be having a quick chat about something that's going on elsewhere on the station or elsewhere in the episode. But broadly, they're just having a good time playing darts. That's all they're doing. I think Deep Space Nine was actually the best at that, just having scenes where characters were just being around each other. And I'm sure we've discussed it before, but my favourite scene in any Marvel movie ever is the Avengers trying to lift Thor's hammer when they're drunk and just having a good time together. Yeah, it's the just hanging out thing. In Deep Space Nine, like you say, a lot of the time that sort of thing would be used as uh, the establishing shots would be them playing darts and having a quick conversation. The camera would then pan over and it would be someone else entering the bar or someone else having another conversation. And actually that's the plot conversation. But that entry shot of them playing darts and doing something is, like you say, it's just showing that they're established on the station. Maybe they could have done a bit more of that. I don't necessarily think that extra episodes would deliver that, though, because you've got the problem where the episode still needs to tell its contained episode story. It's not that by adding five episodes, we then get five episodes worth of extra time elsewhere that they can use, because they've still got to tell that one story. But I guess you get more of those little scenes, those little nuggets, 
within five more episodes, if you know what I mean. I feel like that's maybe a mindset they need to get out of as writers, actually, that every single conversation has to be 100% relevant to one of the plots happening in the episode. It doesn't, because, like I've just said, in Deep Space Nine, we often had scenes that were nothing to do with the plot that the rest of the episode was telling. It was just about two characters growing together. And the example I always use, and people will be bored of me bringing this one up, but it's from Way of the Warrior, where Garrick and Quark sit and have a chat. It's Mm. the root beer conversation, where they compare the Federation to root beer, as in it's so bubbly and cloy and happy. And and they're both kind of disgusted by it, but if you drink enough of it, you start to like it. And they're both sitting there lamenting the fact that the only real hope they have for any stability in their lives is the Federation. And that scene doesn't really have anything to do with the plot of the episode, although it does highlight that while the Defiant's off doing stuff, they're just waiting. They're waiting to see what the result of that will be. And there's a tension there. But what do they do when they're waiting? They just talk. And that's it. What it does is it brings those characters closer together. It gives you a perspective on things that you wouldn't get elsewhere. But it's not necessarily connected to the plot. Whereas in modern Star Trek, it might start off with, oh, hi, I was just doing this. By the way, the plot, let's talk about it. You clumsily segue into it usually. I wonder if they should just get out of the mindset. Do you think that breathing room, I mean, considering that this show, for us at least, is airing on Paramount+, Plus, do you think having more varied length episodes would allow them to put that breathing room in because you see sometimes it gets used to excess where an episode is far too long you can see episodes that go in that are very very short do you think that flexibility would help them at all or do you think actually it's better having the constraint of an episode length it could do but you still have to worry about pacing because even the 42 minute episode star trek shows or 45 or 46 or whatever the standard was at the time could still feel like a slog if it was a bad episode yeah, yeah. But you might enjoy one or two scenes within it. So these scenes that I'm talking about shouldn't detract from the pace of the episode. But the thing is, if they're entertaining in their own right, then they won't. And the thing is, they can't be having the conversation in the middle of a space battle. It's the type of conversation that you can have when it's set a course for here. It'll take us three hours. Okay, well, now we can spend some time within those three hours to maybe let the characters just chill out a bit or have a chat or develop their relationship in some way. Yeah. One thing I really liked was that she found an unconventional mentor in Spock. And it sows the seeds of their friendship that they had in the original series, in a way. There was always a flirtatious quality to their connection in the original series. One of the early episodes, they're sitting playing music and things like that together. She sings and Spock plays the Vulcan lyre instrument. It's like a little harp. Again, it's a little, this is for nothing except character stuff. That's all it exists to do. I really like his harshness with her in that he just tells it like it is, which is very much his personality. But he says to her, well, if you're not sure that you want to be here, then maybe you should go away and let someone who is sure they want to be here take your place. Because pretty hot commodity being on the Enterprise, you're here. <laughs> and other people aren't. And there's people that would appreciate it perhaps more than you do. Yeah, there's a queue of people that would like your positions. The entire fandom says, yes, me. <laughs> if I was on the Enterprise, I would not survive for long. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to live in the Star Trek universe, but I wouldn't join Starfleet. I'd just go live in this utopian luxury somewhere. <laughs> where I can have anything from a replicator. There's no issues. There's no worries about trade unions being eroded and our workers' rights being eroded, all that stuff. There's no build-up to the <laughs> horrors of whatever. Do I get political, though? We will probably get political when talking about this show because it does push very particular buttons in places. But again, I promise we'll get to it. But yeah, Hura and Spock's relationship is interesting because of the way she tries to relate to him and the way they become friends in their own way. And of course, she gets him to sing, which is fun. (laughs) 
that was a bit of a contrivance. We happen to be in this one location where your non-officer skill set, your non-advertised skill set is perfectly useful. We're just lucky we have a good singer here so that we can make this weird thing resonate on this comet. <laughs> if we'd let our actual commissioned communications officer come on the mission, we'd be screwed. <laughs> The one that's supposed to be sitting in that seat, yeah, if we let them come in. Yeah, the one that's supposed to be there is just like, why is a student taking my job? <laughs> but yeah, our development was good, and I loved that shot in the penultimate episode, which is really, I think, the last episode, we'll talk about it, where she walks onto the bridge and you see her out of focus, and in the middle of the frame is the communications console, that mm. I've decided I belong here moment that was really good and it felt earned as well mostly yeah with the little light flashing going there's a message waiting to be received go over hit the button go on start your job go on go on go on (laughs) no one else could press this button only you he's been waiting there for you that unread voicemail that's sitting there on the communication station go on go on go on press the button i've decided i want to answer the phones for the rest of my career that's what i've decided (laughs) i want to do (laughs) i'm going to be on the space switchboard for a bit yeah (laughs) they did expand her role in the same way that they expanded hoshi's skill set in enterprise as in she actually knows languages and she understands how to learn languages and she has different ways of doing things so they gave her a widespread skill set i think definitely oh yeah totally and I liked that touch in the first episode where that alien was running around awfully confused about everything and then she manages to defuse the situation by talking about Tagball, I think the name of the sport was. Whatever the sport was in their planet. It shows you that she doesn't just learn the language, she learns about the culture. So she learns about not just how to talk to them, what to talk to them about, which is a real sign of a good linguist, I would say. Definitely. It helps provide context as well to language and the way people behave because a lot of the time it was okay maybe she hadn't translated the language yet but she was reading body language and posture and the way they were behaving the way they were acting so that played in definitely as silly as it was for an alien that doesn't know aliens existed until a few minutes ago suddenly calmed down by someone mentioning sport (laughs) doesn't seem like that would happen especially if it were me if i were beamed up to an alien ship and then managed to escape their medical bay and was running around and then someone asked me about football, I would be even more terrified. <laughs> the one thing I hate, this isn't going to work. <laughs> Let's move on to La'an, or full name La'an Nunian Singh. We'll start with that surname. Was there any point in her having that surname? We've talked a lot offline and possibly on previous podcasts about how we're sick, peg-sick, of can references in modern Trek. Stop it. Leave it alone. You cannot tap anything more from that well. It is dry. Leave it. <laughs> we talked about Picard. There was a reference to Project Can, and we're worried about that because that's probably going to come up in season three. But that's a problem for another day. So do you think the Noonien Singh surname really means anything in the context of her character? If it had been dropped, would it have made any difference? It makes no difference at the moment, really. The only interaction thing you got was the little bit with Una and that tie-in piece but you could have dropped that it wouldn't have made a difference to the way the character acted because a lot of the character is off the backstory and the motivations are from the backstory not from the surname not from the family history not from any of that sort of stuff the only reason I can think they've put it in is because they've got something on the back burner that they might want to deploy later and that's why they're putting this character in but like you say the well is dry don't bother Just forget about it. It's a coincidence. It's a thing. You can leave it alone. 
They did throw out a couple of hints that it might become relevant, such as her aversion to sedatives, which might just be a quirk. And then the fact that in the third episode, when she was sedated, she woke up before anybody else did. So there's little hints that there's maybe something else going on there. But there was also something else I noticed in terms of the recaps, you know, the previously on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. What they did was in the previously on for the third episode, they cut it off after she said Noonien. So it showed that clip again of her introducing herself in the first episode where she says Lan Noonien Singh, but in the recap in the third episode, she said Lan Noonien. So it was almost like they decided retroactively that she's hiding that second part of her name. Mm. It could go either way, really, but they just casually talk about the fact that she has a despotic dictator ancestor and that caused problems for her growing up. And the first question I had on the back of that is, why didn't your family just change your name? Yeah, why would they keep that going? Why wouldn't she change it? I don't know, I, I guess maybe it's so that if it was to come to a future episode, they'll go, oh, actually, my surname isn't Smith. It's actually Noonien Singh. Dun, dun, dun. Then we'd just be like, oh, for God's sake. Whereas at least this way, they're getting it out in the open on day one rather than keeping it as some sort of, oh, yeah, we planned for this to be the case the whole time sort of thing. It, it doesn't make sense why they wouldn't just change their name if they're unhappy about the thing, especially distant relatives and stuff like that as well. It's not just that she's decided to keep the name, it's that all the relatives past have decided to keep the name and not change it. So it's a bit odd. I did catch the few bits and pieces that you were talking about and maybe because of the way the things that end up happening in the final episode here with Una, potentially it will play into the next season in some way. Maybe. Imagine she'd introduced herself as Lutan Harrison in the first episode when he was like, no, not again, you're not doing this to us again. Yes. Harrison, it should have been Harrison. Damn it, Alex Kurtzman, not again. <laughs> I gave you another chance. <laughs> but yeah, you had that little bit of her falling out with Una, and when I was a kid, I was called Augment. They tease me by calling me Augment, and it's clear that that upsets her. And yeah, just change your name. You can be anything you want. If you live in Germany in 1945 and your surname is Hitler, you're changing it, right? If you've just come out of the eugenics wars and your surname is Noonien Singh, then you're changing it. <laughs> yeah. It might come to something. I wouldn't be surprised if they have some kind of reveal that we haven't had yet that we'll get maybe in season two. But at the moment, I'm wondering why they bother doing it because I found our actual backstory a bit more interesting with the Gorn. And the one thing I forgot to mention with Uhura is her backstory is that her parents died in a shuttle accident and she wanted to join Starfleet to get away from the university that they worked in, which I thought was a bit of an extreme backstory because there's no reason for it to be there. Yeah. Is it just so that the family don't get mentioned going forward or a reason that other characters aren't there? I don't know. It did seem like a bit of a dark But But was it not after the shuttle crash? Was there not a rescue from Starfleet and stuff as well? Or am I mixing up that and Lan's uh, story now? <laughs> I'm mixing up the tragic backstories together. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, it's just that her parents died in a shuttle accident. They don't really fill in the details about that, but couldn't it just be your parents are on Earth? Why yeah, did you join parents. Starfleet? I wanted to. There we go. There's a good justification. Yeah, I wanted to get away. Get away from what? Stuff. <laughs> I like languages, and talking to aliens is a good way to learn languages. There's your motivation yeah. right there. I suppose they wanted that conflict thing, didn't they? They wanted the, oh, I maybe don't want to be in Starfleet. Oh, it turns out this is my place. So that's why they had to make it a story. The reason for joining Starfleet not to be, oh, yeah, I'm totally really good at languages and this is a perfect fit and I get to explore the galaxy and stuff. Because otherwise, it's, yeah, why would you question joining Starfleet? But if it was a rash decision where you're like, yeah, well, I've got to do this for two years and then 
the world's my oyster kind of thing. I don't know. Starfleet's paying for university as long as they do two years of cadet service. Oh, there you go. We talked about it on the Picard podcast anyway, the fact that it's an annoying trope that we're getting in writing in general now, that everybody has to have a tragic backstory because that's the only way you can make them interesting, which I just think is lazy. Because you're forcing an emotional connection because they've had some kind of tragedy in their past that defines them in some way, whereas just introduce someone and actually write a well-developed character. I'm not saying they didn't do that with Ahura, but I felt like her backstory was manipulative. Yeah, there is an aspect to that in modern writing, and it's not just a Star Trek thing. No, it's everywhere. It's a lot of different shows. It's dead parents, it's an entire dead family, it's planet destruction, it's <laughs> evil multiverse version of people getting killed. It's all this. Can you not just have someone that's had a happy life and has made good decisions off the back of that? Is that just too boring? And even the happy characters that you see, eventually once you get three seasons deep, the writers will normally turn down and go, well, they weren't always this happy though. <laughs> and you go, no, don't ruin the person that has the happy backstory. Damn it. <laughs> In this show alone, Ahura's got a tragic backstory. Laan's got one. Spock... Well, sort of, because of what happened with Burnham. Una, not really a tragic backstory, but she's hiding something. And Benga, he has a tragic present. Pike, he's got a tragic future. There's tragedy everywhere on the Enterprise. Just everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you turn. Is Starfleet just a halfway house for people that are upset? Because it seems to be what they're going with in the modern era of Star Trek shows. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess you've got Ortegas and maybe Nurse Chapel are having a happy life. I don't know. <laughs> well, we just don't know about Ortegas's tragic backstory yet. Yeah, we've just not learned it yet. That's in season three. <laughs> but back to Lan, or Laan, her past with the Gorn, where she was captured and forced to watch her family and other people on that ship be the incubators for Gorn eggs and she was the one that they released and she was picked up by turns out Una because the universe is really small like that and she's been dealing with it ever since. I found that really interesting in terms of how they explored it because it started off with her being your classic closed off no-nonsense type. Certainly in fiction that's a common response to that kind of trauma isn't it? I'm just going to not let myself feel anything because it's so horrible to contemplate. But you would see little bits of emotion creep out every now and again, especially when she was confronted with the Gorn. She would be really angry, she would be really scared, she would be really distracted. And that was in the first episode they appeared, where they were just the ships. And she's very steadfast in how she wants this dealt with. We can't give them a second, we can't deal with this. We have to take this very, very seriously and all that kind of stuff. The little bits throughout the show as well about her just keeping that emotional distance from people. She's a bit more familiar with Una because they're already friends and then they have their hijinks in the fifth episode where they're trying out Enterprise bingo and things like that where they figuratively let their hair down a bit but throughout she's really struggling to keep everything inside and then there's an interesting culmination in the final it's not the final episode it's the episode before the final episode but I treat that as the final episode of this season because the final episode which we'll talk about is actually its own thing. And it's not about our characters, really. They are in it, but it's not them. Because it's further on in an alternate timeline. So that final episode, the ninth episode, where she comes to terms with it a little bit, when she meets herself, essentially, a young girl in the same situation she was, and she resolves not to let this young girl go down the same path that she did, making sure that she has someone that understands what she's going through and 
the dismissal of therapy that she had in that episode, where she was, you know, therapy, whatever, I don't care, it's not for me. But that's because the therapist can only understand on a theoretical level what she went through, whereas you have to actually experience it to understand what it means. And that's why Oriana, I think the little girl's name is, I keep wanting to call her Newt because of the alien's connection. It's such an obvious <laughs> riff on aliens, so might as well just call her Newt. But I think it was Oriana. It doesn't really matter. So she resolves to be that support structure that she would have needed when she was young. And there was just little interesting things because she talks about the difference between existing and living. And existing is just you're getting through the day and you're surviving and you don't take joy in anything. But earlier on in that episode, it actually showed that she was getting better in a very small way. It's when she's in Pike's quarters and she's eating food and she's enjoying it. That's her taking joy out of life. That's her getting her life back in a way. And she doesn't really understand that until she's faced with someone who might end up like she did. So that was a really good conclusion, a really subtle conclusion as well, because it was there in the episode and it was seeded early on. I was really impressed by that. It's a good point. They did play with that through. And with the Gorn, they're not the only villains for the season. It's not that season one has been the one where they fight the Gorn, but you've had them in there twice at least. And I think that's where this character's backstory did work in the favour of the show because it gave you someone that had that experience with them. The fact that they played with the fight-flight response there as well. I want to fight them and I want to kill them all, but also I want all of us to get away from here. It wasn't just a straight, yeah, I'm going to take them on myself. It was that realisation that we might not be strong enough or we are not strong enough to take them all on ourselves. The two Gorn episodes were actually some of my favourites this season. The ninth episode is my favourite of the season completely but i like to i think it was the fourth episode wasn't it yes i think so the one that is kind of the submarine analogy i always like it when star trek does a submarine starship battle. <laughs> it reminded me of things like starship down the deep space nine one where they were in the gas giant with the jemadar chasing them and Worf was in command and the defiant was humped it was <laughs> badly damaged it's a bit like that yeah, it's one of those where you see it, and I think Voyager's had a couple of episodes like that. But hide in the nebula, and then oh, it's, it's always a nebula, we can't see it. them, they can't see us. How do we know where they are? And as soon as we fire, we give away our position. I like the tactics in it as well, using the black hole and time dilation and all that stuff. Some actual science in there. We'll be here, but it looks like we're here. And it looked stunning. The visual that they did of them getting away from that looked amazing as well. Yeah, the visuals have been really stunning. Yeah. yeah. Also, again, it's a reference to Wrath of Khan, that battle, because it's very similar. The ships are handicapped in some way, and they have to tactically get their way out of the situation, like dropping a torpedo on the Gorn ship and things like that. The Enterprise spent a lot of time in space dock this season, didn't it? It just seemed to be back and forth. We're broken again. Back in for repairs. But see, I was kind of glad that they did play into that, though. And you talked about it earlier on, where you would have a massive space battle. And then the next episode, it's like, so the ship is fine. And <laughs> uh, we're going about our business as per usual. Especially the case for a show like Voyager, where every panel circuit blew up. Every fuse that went should have been like, oh, no, we're down to our last number of fuses or whatnot. Some of the bits that are too complex to replicate, that should have been more of an issue. At least in this show, they've got the excuse of we've been to space dock. And they even made good use of it after that fourth episode, as in the Enterprise is going to be in here for a while. So we're just going to do something else while the Enterprise is benched and being repaired again for the third time since we've seen it. Because we were introduced to the Enterprise being heavily damaged in Discovery, and then it gets the crap kicked out of it in the Discovery finale, and then after episode four of this, once again. And even the beginning of the season, I think, was it's been in dock getting refitted or sorted out again. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be the same instance as the end of Discovery, or whether it was just Mm. due an upgrade. I don't know. doesn't matter. 
In and out of space dock is the Enterprise. The way they handled Lan's connection to the Gorn, or the way that she felt about the Gorn, was really interesting. I feel like the way the Gorn were handled were a little bit too simplistic, though. I don't know how well you remember the original series episode where Kirk fights the Gorn. If you don't, you'll remember the famous part of it. It's just Shatner clubbing a guy in a lizard suit, throwing polystyrene rocks at a guy in a lizard suit, and so on. It's a famous episode. It's a great episode. I've definitely seen those scenes. I would be struggling to remember the full episode. But the point in that episode is that he spares the Gorn captain's life, and there's a godlike alien species, because there's quite a lot of them in the original series, that are impressed by Kirk doing that because he demonstrates the advanced quality of mercy, and he realises the Gorn is a, a life form and he doesn't want to take its life and, or his life and so forth. Whereas in this, they're just monsters. They're not really anything. Because if you look at Star Trek antagonists of yore, the old school ones, the Klingons were stand-ins for the Russians originally and so on. Even in Voyager, the Kazon were stand-ins for scrappy Middle Eastern terrorists. The Vidians were stand-ins for paranoia about AIDS and whatever else. If you look at any major antagonist in Star Trek, you can track them to whatever American-led paranoia existed at the time. Here's the thing that we're just not sure about. And then Star Trek tells morality plays about how you can better understand these things you're not sure about. I don't know necessarily what the current analogy would be and how you can apply that to the Gorn, but they are just monsters. There's no value placed on their lives in any of the episodes they're in. They're just, we have to kill them because otherwise they'll kill us, which robs them a bit of texture and character. There's attempts to communicate. In the first episode they appear, there is an attempt of let us live, let us go, but there's no communication with them. And then when it's the aliens base episode as you said in that one they're just killing machines they're not communicating in any way they're not having a chat they are just going to kill everyone so it's not so much that they don't attempt to do mercy or forgive or communicate it's just that actually on the Gorn side that doesn't happen so the only response that there can be is you're either going to kill them or they're going to kill you because you've got no way of saying let's have a truce. Yeah, and it's supported by the way the episodes are set up, which is fine. It's just more from the point of view of the Starfleet characters. They behave as if they're monsters. No one really talks about the, oh, what if we try and understand them and see if there is common ground, that kind of stuff. You do have Spock being interested in how they work, but that's just the way he is. And then you have Kirk's brother, we'll talk about him, just saying, oh, he's fascinated, that's great. He's just terrified. Spock's like, oh, I'm really interested in this, I want to learn more. Meanwhile, they're trying to rip your head off or whatever. But maybe we'll get more of the Gorn in the second season and they'll be able to do a bit more because the season kind of lacked that. In terms of a threat that's actually tangible or relatable in any way, something that you can understand, something you can point at and say, this is what this is supposed to represent. If you look at the major antagonists, like I said in other Star Trek shows, you can point to what they're supposed to be. In Deep Space Nine, the Dominion are a skewed mirror of the Federation, for example. No, it's true. Do you know what? I'm kind of glad that we didn't have one villain for the majority of the season sort of looming over them. I was kind of glad of that, in a way. It might be that the next season, yeah, there is a season-run villain and stuff like that, but for this, I was glad of the little glimpses we got. Yeah, I was too, but there was just part of me that wanted more when it came to the Gorn or anything else, really. I think there were some things that needed more time to develop or needed more work done on them. Talked a bit about Spock, let's just move on to him. We're not getting any new ground here with him, really, in terms of what we've seen before. We've seen him conflicted between his Vulcan and human sides before. This is an earlier version of that conflict, although I think it's weirdly handled because it sets up room for him to grow and develop, but you know there's only so far he can get 
in canon. I feel like they're going to overdevelop him in this show, and then if you watch the original series behind it, he's reset in a lot of ways. I kind of feel the same. They could only go so far. This is one of the characters, what I was saying about her earlier on, and going, you can play a bit with her backstory and how she was feeling before Starfleet and stuff. The problem with Spock is you can't do tons. To be fair, they gave him a sister. (laughs) So when I say they can't play about with him that much, they're a good bit with him. (laughs) It's difficult because, like you say, if you push him too far along his advancement along the way that he relates to other characters and his interaction with his human side and his emotions as much as he's trying to control them then you do brush up against that well how's this going to work against the original series i do think that they are tinkering around the edges a bit and you can definitely see that especially with stuff like the finale and other bits that they're potentially bringing in next season or they definitely are bringing in some stuff next season (laughs) part of me goes okay you've either got to do it that it's pike's enterprise and you've got a very limited set of your original series characters on it you can go this far and you can go no further kind of thing if you start adding more and more characters into it you're just not going to be able to do anything with anyone which is why i was surprised when they killed off one of the newer characters that was quite popular in this season because it's oh well this is a character that you can do whatever you want but oh you've killed them off okay you're filling in some blank spaces with spock but i don't think there's much room there and i wasn't as engaged with him in this season out of all the other characters you've got because it's like saying well you know where this is going right i enjoy seeing the interactions between him and pike i like some of the conversations and you're getting to see him in nurse chapel and stuff like that these different relationships that he's got but at the same time i'm not feeling it fret for him or anything it's interesting because i think spock was somewhat in the background a little bit and i wonder if that's why i wonder if the writers are worried about pushing him too far in certain directions but i also think that the stuff he did have to do was pushing them quite far in different directions. I have a theory that they're going to do some kind of stealth reboot of the original series at some point, and then we'll just use that as Star Trek continuity from now on. So we'll get Paul Wesley, etc., and we'll do a couple of seasons of the new original series, and that means we can carry Spock on his arc, and then that'll be it. But assuming they're not doing that, there are things that they pick up here that feel like things he should learn later. You see in Spock Amok... He's having dreams about fighting against his human side. It's that very literal dream, isn't it? The Vulcan versus the human. Mm. They throw in the Amok Time music because, why not? I'll let you away with it. It's shameless fan service, but I just love that music, so we're okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a dream. The music exists in a dream, so again, we're okay with it. And it gives you a very literal example of what Spock is dealing with, the questions that he's asking of himself. I like the way they bring that into his relationship with T'Pring, because in that same episode... You get a bit of background on the fact that T'Pring seems to want him to embrace his Vulcan side and wants him to be ashamed of his human side. So things like, your quarters are very human, and he says, I'm redecorating. She says, all right, okay, I withdraw my criticism, or whatever the line is, but something like that. So they're obviously not on the same page there, because Spock doesn't necessarily want to forget about his human side, because it's part of him. We know that he loves his mother, and his mother is a big part of who he is and all that stuff. And the thing is, we can't have him interact with his parents in this show because we know, again, assuming they're not rebooting the original series at some point, we know that he doesn't speak to his parents until a mock time. And it's been years since they spoke. That's why they don't interact when they're on Discovery at the same time he is at the end of season two of Discovery. Just weird. It's Michael, we're here to say goodbye to you. Yeah, Spock's upstairs. Oh, no, nah, we're not going to speak to him. 
We're not on good terms. <laughs> we'll just leave. We're here to speak to you, not him. But he's upstairs. Just go say bye. He's coming to the future with us at this point. You'll never see him again. Nah, we don't need to do that. <laughs> so he won't be able to speak with his parents unless, again, they ignore that thing in a mock time. And we've talked about this before, and we'll definitely talk about it more, actually, when we talk about the finale, because there are things about canon I just don't care about anymore. These things that people get hung up on. But in the original series, they said this. Yeah, but the original series said this and they didn't expect it to be a 55-year franchise. It's just a line that's thrown in for no reason. So are we really going to negate the possibility of two actors getting to meaningfully interact with one another because of one line that existed in an episode that was just thrown in there for the sake of that episode? Do we want that? Yeah, they were writing for that particular episode at that time. A reason that these characters haven't been brought in before. Oh, it's because we've never spoken to them because of a reason or whatnot. Both of the star related franchises are dealing with that issue at the moment they are yeah they're both wrestling with this well we want to do stuff with these characters but also there are all these little throwaway lines that are included in older movies older episodes of shows that will completely contradict this and are the fans gonna welcome it or not i mean there'll be some diehards that go i don't want anything touched whatsoever there'll be some people who go i'm all for them completely rewriting the entire thing and there'll be middle ground people that are if it's good if you do a good job of it i'll be fine with it if you absolutely muck it up or you do it for no good reason you just do it for the sake of it then i'd rather you didn't if you're going to do it you've got to do it with a purpose there's a reason that you're redoing it or there's a reason that you're re-going over it because it's something that's really, really needing to be done. Not just, oh, because we want this for reasons. It'll look good on a poster. It'll get fans excited. No, you've got to have a story reason for your show, for this to make sense. You've got to have a character reason. What benefit is there to the character for this to happen now, as opposed to when it was originally written? What does it add? If you're sticking to this as continuity, what does it add? If you're keeping the original series as continuity and you're not, branching off doing your own thing and surprising everyone with it you could go around in circles with these things i think if they do it well then it's not too bad and we've done a conversation about the obi-wan show that i will mention here in the completely different franchise (laughs) where we wrestle with similar questions yes it's a difficult one because i don't want to say that the people that find that messing around with canon in that way is sacrilege and I've been that guy before. I've been watching episodes of Star Trek and thinking, oh my God, that's completely contradicting that thing that came before. And that really annoys me because it feels like they aren't paying attention. But now I'm just thinking, let's not stick so slavishly to something that was made 55 years ago. Let's not worry about it so much. Let's keep the broad strokes intact for sure. Kirk and Spock are best friends. Kirk and McCoy are best friends, etc., etc. Keep all those broad strokes in play. But things like... Spock speaking to his father. Why not have that? Because you would get to see Ethan Peck and James Frain share screen time. That's a good thing, right? Assuming the scene's written well. There's hand-wavy on ways they can get around it. It can be that they've never officially spoken for years or stuff like that. It's a flashback. It's a flashback so that you get to see the two characters interacting or it's a mind-melds telephone call so technically it never happened or technically it did but no one will ever know. I don't know. It's covered under the official secrets along with <laughs> my long-missing sister that's trapped in time. There's hand-wavy on ways. Like I say, if they do it well, if they do it for the right reasons, then I'm probably not too angry. If they were to go to soft reboot in some way, 
or try and fill in some gaps that exist or something, I wouldn't be 100% against it. I'm not as diehard when it comes to the original series as some other people, as much as it's the thing that started it all. I don't hold it in that same way that some other people do, so I don't mind them tinkering around ages. Maybe it's because I've already got used to the idea with the J.J. Abrams movies. I'm still already used to them doing something else with the characters that maybe I don't hold them in the same way, whereas if they turned around and said, oh, we're rebooting Next Generation, I might have a different opinion. And that's valid again. It's what you're willing to put up with. But also, I think a good explanation will be Spock is just a compulsive liar when it comes to family. What he does. <laughs> it's a valid reason. Because he has a sister he denies. He has a half-brother that he denies. I haven't spoken to my mother and father in years. He's lying about that for some reason. I haven't seen a mock time in a while, and I keep meaning to rewatch it just to remind myself of what the connection to Tupring was depicted as here. I imagine it was very 60s and didn't age well. That's my guess, but I can't really remember. Although I do seem to remember the whole setup is this arranged marriage, and I think it was an arranged marriage in the show at the time, Tutupring is really something that Spock should get out of because otherwise he can't be on the Enterprise. And of course, he's one of our characters, so we have to resolve this by him being back on the Enterprise by the end of the episode, which means he can't be tethered to this marriage. But in this, their relationship is much more consensual, as in she proposes to him, he accepts, and they have a go at just having a relationship. And it's interesting the way that it works because she starts off by not wanting him to be human at all so I wonder if there's that stigma associated with the fact that she's with a half human but that makes you wonder why she's with him in the first place so there's obviously something there that she finds to use the word fascinating about him and then when they finally have that open conversation after some body switching hijinks I'm with Spock on this one I don't like hijinks or that kind of hijinks <laughs> I do approve of the use of the word hijinks though that word should be used more often. Especially when it's coming out of Spock's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Such a colloquial word, and when he says it, it sounds like a swear word, doesn't it? <laughs> but when they have that open conversation and he says, I don't want to hide my human part of me, it's part of who I am. And then after that, she starts to embrace it. She seems more interested in exploring it than he does, which I found interesting. They have those awkward conversations over subspace where she brings up human sexuality and all that stuff. And he's like, mm, hang on, hang on, let's talk about science. I like science. Let's talk about that instead. I've been reading this book that says that we should try. No, no, no. Let me just stop you there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Family show, please. Let's talk about science. And I'm all about science. What they've done is they've taken a character that was really shallow in the original series and fleshed her out in some really interesting ways. And the way that the relationship is works in this show. And you could argue, and again, I haven't got the informed perspective of having seen a mock time recently enough. I should really rewatch it just to remind myself. But I feel like... What they've done in this show, Spock and Pring, cannot lead to what a mock time did because they're two different things. And you won't have seen a mock time possibly at all. I've not seen a mock time in an even longer time than you, I would guess. <laughs> I'm in agreement with you in regards to tying them into the original series. So we'll see what happens there. But I did find what they did with Spock interesting because they had that whole are you Vulcan or human thing. And when you had Angel, let's call them their real name because they were posing as a scientist and... Apparently no one bothered to look up their picture before letting them on the Enterprise, because that would have really given the game away. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, but lack of proper security. Seems like Lan should be better than that. She was busy doing more Enterprise bingo or something that day. Yeah, who knows what she was up to. But Angel gives Spock something else to think about in terms of how he defines himself, because he's 
trying to resolve whether he's Vulcan or human. And they tell him, you don't have to be either of those things. And it's the whole concept of geography or biology. So are you defined by your geography or your biology, or are you going to define yourself on some other level? Is Spock Vulcan or human? Well, he's neither. He's Spock. And he has to find his own identity. And that's something he ultimately does years later. You see that version of him in the films, where he knows who he is, where he's found himself. It's like we were talking about. There's only so far he can go in this show, but it seems like he's taking a major step forward and he's thinking about trying to figure out who Spock is without worrying about where he comes from or what his genetic makeup is. And then he forgets about it for a number of years and then thinks about it later. It's like in Smallville when people tell Clark, you should really practice flying or you should really think about being Superman. He's like, yeah, I'll think about it. And then six seasons later, (laughs) he finally thinks about it. I'll get there someday. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It'll just happen one day. It's fine. And then the thing of it is, this development is one of the ways that I don't think Strange New Worlds pushes itself far enough in a way because it is a modern Star Trek show and things have been far more normalised than they certainly were in the 60s or even in the 90s or whenever they were making Star Trek because in Deep Space Nine you had Trill characters who are great ways to explore the concept of gender and identity but they didn't take it as far as they could have because the tools weren't really there at the time, the understanding wasn't there at the time, I guess the audience potential buy-in wasn't there at the time but in this they could have really pushed it and the idea of Spock exploring his identity could have been almost a trans allegory or certainly a non-binary allegory or just an identity allegory in a really different way. It's almost that they've closeted him because he can't decide what he is or he can't face up to or admit what he is. And his arc is kind of about coming out of the closet, but they leave him in the closet and then they don't really apply any modern characterization sensibilities to it, which I think they should. And maybe they will in the future, but then again, that pushes them too far down the road. But you're also pushing them too far down the road into oldened characteristics that are now no longer relevant, really, in storytelling, if that makes any sense. It does make good sense, but I think you've hit the nail on the head as to some of the reasoning why, which is they can only go so far with a character that they've got a fixed point where this character comes in. So they can't have big revelations and big changing ideas before that goes in and that's the disadvantage of having a character like this in the show it is because it's a prequel it doesn't stop them exploring some of it it just no. stops them being able to come to those big realizations or you've got to have some way of that realization going wrong and then he's back to the default position by the end and i don't know whether you want to go through that kind of wasted journey isn't the right term but to go through that with them knowing that they're going to hit a default button again at the start. Yeah, because we know that he'll spend a while being full Vulcan, or trying to be full Vulcan, because that's essentially what he tries to do during the original series. And then the motion picture picks up with him going through the Colinar ritual, which is supposed to purge all remaining emotions, but he doesn't complete the ritual. So when he appears on the Enterprise in the motion picture, the motion picture does nothing with it because it doesn't know what to do with any character, really. There's just no characterization Mm -hmm. in that film practically whatsoever. But he, in theory, goes aboard the Enterprise as conflicted as he was in the original series because that film is about getting the band back together and everybody has to be exactly where they were before and there's recognisable positions. And then you see him in Wrath of Khan where he seems to have figured it out a bit and then he dies and then he comes back at the end of Search for Spock and he's back at the start of the journey all over again and he gets retrained in the Vulcan way and then by the time you get to Star Trek 6 he's nailed it again he knows who he is and then later on you see him more and more and he's much more comfortable with who he is so I guess the conclusion of Strange New Worlds whenever the final episode ever airs is Spock has gone full Vulcan that's where he ends up 
Yeah. Which is a bit of a disappointment in a way because, again, there is so many things you could do. And if Spock was a new character with those kinds of issues, you could really dance around with them and play different things with them because the dynamic with Angel was really good. I thought that even though they were an antagonist and were revealed to be an antagonist, they pushed very particular buttons with Spock. But that character was all about playing people as well. They were pushing the buttons for everyone to try and get what they wanted by the end, trying to get the ship, essentially, was the whole thing. And it was just that manipulation from the start. But it didn't mean they weren't right. Yeah, it didn't mean that they weren't putting the right thing across. And then you had a major step forward in the ninth episode, or step backwards, or a step in a direction anyway, when Spock opens up his full rage and then he can't put it back in the box. At the end of the episode, he says, I've let something out and it's not gone back in. Well, that was an interesting development. So I wonder what they'll do with that. And then the 10th episode is seven years later in an alternate timeline. So nothing, I guess, so far. Nothing yet. Just next season will seem a little bit angry sometimes. <laughs> There's a little bit angry is out the box. He does have some small emotional outbursts throughout the season, though. Second episode, when he moves the comet, he laughs which was very original series where you would get a bit of a zinger at the end of the episode. Kirk and McCoy would be making fun of Spock and then Spock would reply with something. It's a good jab. He would do that quite often when McCoy was being inappropriately racist. They lined that one up, didn't they? It was Pike, I think, that said, sometimes we laugh. Sometimes things are so bad we just have to laugh. Yeah, as soon as they said that, I was like, okay, he's got to get a laugh by the end of this. Why are you laughing at the misfortune of this story? Because sometimes things are just so bad you have to laugh and then... End of the episode, he has a little chuckle, and that's him. That's to show you that he's a bit less centred than we'll see him later. But it was a bit weird having him in the background the way that he was, but I understand why they did it. And I did like some of the little details. The third episode, for example, where Pike was fearing for his life, and he was, oh, this is really amazing. Look at all this stuff off that Spock, help me barricade the door so that we live through the night, thanks. Mm-hmm. We should do that. <laughs> but I'm busy reading the old newspapers. Yeah, yeah. Take the newspapers with you, come on. So let's talk about Una then. The first officer, number one, Una Chin-Riley. The first time that I'm aware of that we've gotten a surname for her, but she's the first officer. I wonder if her lack of appearance in the show is down to the fact that they maybe don't have a lot of time with Rebecca Romaine because she very rarely has anything meaningful to do. She'll be in group scenes and then disappear. And the only meaningful episode she gets all her own is the third one the rest of the time she's very much in the background she's barely in the first episode at all well that's true actually yeah she sort of disappears for bits and then comes back and has a little insightful moment or a little thing and then vanishes again yeah because she's barely in the ninth episode as well she's only a couple of scenes so i do wonder if they're just working around her availability because she's possibly the biggest star that they have potentially there's one thing that i'd say and I said this when I appeared on the We Made This Network, We Are Starfleet show, talking about, funnily enough, the third episode, which was the Una episode. And there's just certain actresses in Hollywood that are in nerd stuff like this that they're just cool. So you've got Rebecca <laughs> Romaine, she's just really cool. And the other one's Adrian Palicki, who was in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and is currently in the Orville. Again, she's just cool. You see her on screen, she's just cool. Is that just me that thinks that? Or is it just that vibe that they give off? Well, there are certain actors and actresses that are like that. They appear on screen, you go, oh, they're cool. Or you like them in different shows, and I'm glad that they're working and they're appearing in all this different stuff that I like. Charlize Theron's another one. Whenever you see her, yeah, you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the three that I think of when I think of cool actresses and nerd stuff. The showcase of her in that third episode was really good. In terms of the way she puzzles things out. When she gets back on the Enterprise and Pike's stuck on the planet and she just immediately takes charge. She just wanders onto the bridge, sits on the chair like she belongs and she's like, right, everybody, do your jobs. And they're all like, yeah, sure, Commander, no problem. So you get that real sense of authority from her. And her friendship with Pike 
is very natural as well. I think they bounce off each other brilliantly. And it's something, again, I would have liked to see a bit more of. I'm struggling to see how anyone wouldn't get on with Pike. <laughs> Every time I see Pike, I'm like, I would get on well with Pike. You get that shared history vibe through them. You get a good visual shorthand and stuff through the show that establishes the fact that they've got a trust in each other and a respect for each other and their opinions and what they're doing. So I think you definitely get that. I don't think it's vocalised a lot in the show, but I think they do a lot of the show don't tell aspect to that. Yeah. Some of my favourite moments were like in the episode where Pike's old squeeze beams aboard and they're flirting back and forth and she's just standing there giving him knowing looks and he's all flustered because he knows she knows exactly what is happening here. She knows exactly mm. what's happening here. All in a look. I think that was really good. Her friendship with... La'an was really good as well, but that was one of the continuity issues I had, actually, because when they have a falling out in the third episode, because of Una being dishonest about her origins and La'an being really upset about that. Then you have the fifth episode, and they're just friends again. They're goofing off. They're doing Enterprise bingo. There's no sense that there was any lasting consequences to that reveal, which bothered me. Yeah, it didn't seem to linger. It was literally, you had that episode, you had a bit of a gap where... There wasn't really much interaction between the two. And then you get the shenanigans. Hijinks. Hijinks episode going off and doing Enterprise Bingo. Like you say, after that, it doesn't crop up. So that was a slight continuity thing. It seemed like you should have at least got a bit more of a resolution to it or a bit of it still bubbling under the next episode. Yeah. And what did you think of the reveal that she's genetically enhanced? It's a larger conversation, but the implications of that, the implications of the way that she's treated as a result of that, and the fact that the Federation are so vehemently against genetic engineering. My view on the reveal was actually quite a complicated one, because I have read novels set on Pike's Enterprise years ago. And in those novels, Una is an Illyrian, and they talk about her being genetically enhanced to fit in with humans or whatever it is. I forget the actual reasons, but she's essentially introduced as being like a perfect specimen of humanity. A bit like, you haven't played it, but Miranda and Mass Effect, I suppose. That's the most relevant comparison that I can think of. So when they revealed it, I was like, oh, right, okay. So they're picking up that bit of backstory. That's interesting. It's one of those, this isn't canon because no one's ever said it before on screen, but everyone kind of accepts it as canon. Like a lot of things in Star Trek, really. This was put in enough books for me to consider this canon. Enough authors compared notes for me to consider this canon. So it's fine. So they do that in this show. But to have that reveal happen in only the third episode, which is the first episode we've really seen Una do anything, I don't think it has the necessary impact. Because you don't know that she's hiding anything. You find out that she's hiding something and then you find out what it is in the same episode. Yeah, I did have a feeling that came around a bit too quick. You should have had a bit of foreshadowing. You maybe could have ordered some episodes differently because it is that episodic thing to try and make that fit. But then I guess there was other reveals in that episode that they needed in order for it to work so i've got to agree with you i would have liked for it to linger longer but i know why they cut it a little bit for me the reveal i've not read the novelization stuff and the expanded universe stuff so for me it was oh fair enough it's someone holding a secret it's one of the few vices that starfleet and the federation are not fond of <laughs> it's one of these where we go yes we treat all people the same and we're here for fairness and truth and justice and all these things apart from them apart from them in particular for them we have no time it's a little bit of a surprise that and i thought you were going to get a bit more of people maybe looking into it later in the season 
which means the little bit in the finale where suddenly out the blue it's oh yeah we're taking you away for investigation and stuff so bye i was more expecting there to be people trying to probe and ask and for people on the ship to be trying to cover it up maybe because pike goes we'll deal with it when it happens we'll deal with it together i can't remember what the line the crew will back you i'll back you everyone will back you but then you don't really get that yeah it's one of those things that's completely irrelevant until it's just brought up out of the blue in the 10th episode to give you a cliffhanger Mm. it's not something that really seems relevant and actually i've wondered if they'd forgotten about it after the review because again you would get that in other stuff as well and i suppose the closest analog we can think of is bashir being outed as essentially being the same Mm. thing and they resolve that in that same episode it's the well we're gonna let this happen in this case because uh, you're contracted for seven seasons on this show and we can't get rid of the actor, so we're just going to keep doing this. We're going to keep you on for reasons. And it's not reasons that I was able to buy into because I just think it was a bit clumsy. The whole thing was a bit clumsy anyway, but that's a different show that we'll maybe talk about some other day. But I also think this reveal is very clumsy as well because, again, it doesn't have that impact because you don't know her that well. So the first chance you have to get to know her, you find out that she's hiding something and then you find out what she's hiding, so... Again, in this mythical 15-episode season that I want, you do that in episode 12. You maybe seed it in episode 3, but you do it in episode 12. Yeah, I definitely think it should have been seeded. In the ideal world, it would have been seeded very early on and then being a slow-build reveal rather than all done in an episode and not mentioned again until the finale. And I don't think it really means a lot in the context of the episode itself, other than the fact it just means Una can do stuff without worrying about becoming infected. But then they had that whole contrived reason of solving the problem because it turns out the warp core almost exploding caused antibodies to transfer from her to Laan or something like that and they were able to use that. Again, that's what I was talking about when it's, I don't think they've nailed episodic storytelling. It's, we've told a 40 minute story here. Oh crap, we need to wrap it up. Uh, just do this. I think that happened a few times. To be fair, a lot of shows do that and Star Trek has done it in the past where it's essentially you've got one person or two people that are immune to the virus or at least can outlast it a little bit longer and then the delivery system is they've got to go and put it into the air conditioning, into the atmospheric controls and it'll get dispersed amongst the ship or if we flash the light panels at the right frequency we can flash all the light panels across the ship and it'll cure everyone or we can set off an EMP that will destroy all the nanites and all the people it's been used in Star Trek, it's been used in Stargate anything where they've done a contaminated lockdown doors sealed and all this sort of stuff and Voyager it would be Seven's nanoprobes protector and the Doctor's a hologram it's that sort of contrivance it's we've injected everyone with modified nanoprobes and then it's all done it's fixed cured but we've got to get how do we do the whole ship at once if we have one person that still has it then everyone will die it's that delivery mechanism I'll let them have it because it's something that we've had so many times before but like you say it's convenient isn't it it's very convenient oh yeah I'm not saying that Strange New Worlds is the only thing to do that poorly, but at the same time, they still did it poorly. And even the contagion itself was a bit wooly in terms of the way it was developed because it travels through light, but we're standing there with the lights on. And even in the dark, there's still some light, so it travels through light. How did that work? And it had the bit where Ahura didn't get infected, but her roommate's dead. It's because she sleeps in total darkness, but she's standing in the light now. So... Why is she not infected now? And obviously it's a little bit triggering to hear them talking about lockdown and contact tracing in that episode. (laughs) 
no spoilers for the recent series of Westworld, but there's contagion vibes oh, partway no. through this season oh, of Westworld. No. Stop doing it. <laughs> it's flashbacks. Flashbacks. Yeah. Please leave that. All those words are now banned from TV shows. <laughs> Thank you. For 10 years. In 10 years, we might be ready to think about it again. But until then, stop it. But the genetic engineering thing, so you said about this weird intolerance that Federation has for those who are genetically engineered. And I actually found that this show was interrogating the Federation in some different and interesting ways that we haven't really seen before on Star Trek, other than maybe in Deep Space Nine. One of them was talking about the piracy that was going on, but it's outside Federation space, so we don't care, that kind of thing. We're only sending the Enterprise because there are Federation citizens at risk. Otherwise, whatever, just rob ships, see if we care. It's the, yeah, it's not our territory, but also, aren't you supposed to be better than that? It's that push and pull, isn't it? Are the Federation living up to their own ideals, necessarily? Definitely. There's a bit of that play of, well, it's not within our borders. So as long as it's not impacting us, then it's fine. That could go on. But as soon as it impacts us, we're going to kick off. So yeah, you can see a little bit of that. And you did get flavours of it in Deep Space Nine. And across all the shows, you've always got that flavour of all people are equal, but some are more equal than others aspect of it. The Federation just decides, yeah, we're not having any of this. Yeah, the genetic engineering thing is interesting because, well, we don't really have complete context as to why they're so afraid of it but it's a fear-based policy we don't understand this we're afraid of this so therefore it's banned and they talk about the Illyrians they engineer themselves to to conform to the species they want to interact with they're using that technology they're using those expertise to make things more palatable for other people so Una looks human because the Illyrians have decided that'll be more palatable for humans and that's why she's engineered in that way the Illyrians actually appeared before in Star Trek, remember the episode of Enterprise where Archer felt like he had to attack the innocent ship and steal their warp coil? Mm. That was the Illyrians, but they looked different. They were funny forehead people in that one. Mm, okay. Maybe it's about the, well, how about you let our citizen serve in your Federation Starfleet and we'll forget about the warp coil that you stole a hundred years ago. Since you're chasing us up, when are we getting our warp coil back? Those guys are so stuck out there. They haven't made it back yet. So the aversion to genetic engineering is an intolerance and be interesting to really dig into why that is. And I think we'll be doing that next season. But also, that's another story that can only go so far because you know that that aversion still exists in the 24th century. They haven't gotten over it. It's still taboo. It's still not allowed. I look forward to them exploring it a little bit more in the next season. But like you say, we know there's certain things that they can't do with it. Yeah. Again, it holds up an uncomfortable mirror of the Federation. It's why you're not comfortable with this, but preaching about equality and tolerance in other areas. And then you get a bit of that where Pike says, I'm going to back you. I welcome that discussion. So Pike is consistently the embodiment of what Starfleet values should be. And then you get tastes of the fact that Starfleet and the Federation aren't quite practicing what they preach. But Pike is. He's that guy. I suppose he's cheating a bit because he has that personal connection to Una. He knows how useful she is. He knows how valuable she is to him and how good friends they are. And even Una questions that at the end. She says, what if I hadn't saved the ship? What would be happening to me now? So she always has that doubt. And that's why she hides it, even from people she's close to, because she worries that people will see her differently. So that's all really interesting. But I find myself really compelled to want to see that explored properly because why is that? I understand because of the eugenics wars, whatever happened during all that, because of Khan and his posse and all those genetically engineered people that took over the planet somehow at some undisclosed year. We don't know exactly when it is. Well, we do sort of know when it is, but that's been retconned. That's another canon violation that we'll get to. But in this show, we have a real hatred for this, a real fear of this. And I just find it really compelling that it's run counter to what 
everything's supposed to stand for. I really hope we get some concrete answers as to why that fear exists. Well said. And we had a couple of bits with the Prime Directive as well. Oh, it's called General Order 1 at this point. They make a joke about, we might call it the Prime Directive one day, and Pike says, Haha, that'll never stick. Wink. Because <laughs> <laughs> they breached the Prime Directive in the very first episode. Well, they get away with it on a technicality, which I thought was hilarious. It's the idea of, we ruined the society accidentally, so it's our responsibility to step in and fix it. I quite like that distinction, Pike again interpreting the rules in the way that he considers to be morally correct. We can't just leave them to blow themselves up because this is our fault. We didn't know it was, but it was our fault. We had a big space battle nearby and didn't think about the fact that they could see it. (laughs) And it was a nice tie-in to the end of Discovery as well. Yeah, the Prime Directive is normally always the captain trying to work around the rules. (laughs) Technically, we didn't do anything. Yeah, well, previously it's sometimes been applied as an unflinching doctrine. There's no flexibility within it whatsoever, but that doesn't make any sense because it's a rule written by people that won't apply to every given situation. So that's down to the captain or whoever's in command of the mission to say, well, this doesn't comply with the letter of the Prime Directive, but I felt I had to do this because of X, Y, Z. And then we have different interpretations of it as well across the franchise in terms of what we can and cannot do. And I'll refer to Into Darkness for a moment because it's relevant. As in, according to the Prime Directive, in fact, according to another version of Christopher Pike, the Prime Directive says, this volcano is going to erupt and wipe out these people. And it would have erupted whether we were there or not. So therefore, it's nothing to do with us. We can just sit in orbit and scan it and say, look, we've got some high resolution scans of this volcano eradicating an entire species of people. We did nothing to help it. But this version of Pike seems to think that intervening is his responsibility. In fact, a very similar situation is the comet about to hit this planet. The comet would have hit the planet whether they were there or not. But he says, we have to save the species. No questions asked. We're moving this comet, which is basically the same thing. So I find that interesting how different writers seem to apply the Prime Directive or seem to interrogate the Prime Directive. I'm less on the page of the cutthroat, immoral, we're only here because we're here, so we have to let this disaster happen when we could easily prevent it. I'm more on the page of, no, we are here. If we can do it without being caught, then we should. Yeah, I get why the hardline rules are there. I guess with the comet, it was because it's not a natural comet they discover that there's something else at play but before they do they notice it's on a collision course and they think it's a normal comet so they're like yeah we'll move it because we're here and we can do it that's when they discover that they can't i guess the prime directive is if you stop that volcano going off and wiping out that species then whatever species is due to follow it won't then happen and who are you to decide that that is the correct way out so in theory let's go with the meteor that wipes out the dinosaurs future starship or past starship passes earth notices meteors going to wipe out a large portion of life on earth stops meteors from killing out dinosaurs we don't happen that's the loop round you stop that cataclysmic event happening and wiping out the dominant species of that time then the other species that might have followed behind doesn't then happen which is Maybe a brutal view of looking at it, but is the reason for the rule, if you want to try and justify the rule in those cases. Yeah, but you're operating on a hypothetical there because it's a what if a species evolves. 
what if what comes next or what does come next what comes next could be another gorn-like species that <laughs> lays its eggs inside of people whereas you've got the peace-loving worshippers that are down there at the moment you can totally argue for that but should that be my decision to make to me the prime directive is more simply applied in terms of you don't interfere with the natural development of a species on a planet so a natural disaster or whatever advocating for extinction is not a good look i don't think i get that it's complicated if you're observing a planet and they're at war with each other so the vulcans are as we know they did studying earth and they're studying earth during the middle of the 20th century and they notice that the allies and the nazis are fighting a brutal war that ain't their problem because it's a domestic problem between two factions on this planet they have to resolve it themselves which is kind of what's happening in the first episode except it's only happening because of the technology they were able to sort of reverse engineer from what they saw through their telescopes so if it wasn't for them recklessly having a space battle nearby that wouldn't have happened or certainly not in the same way because they were risking total destruction whereas before it would have just been global devastation in terms of the sort of equivalent of I don't know what the equivalent is, because they seem more contemporary with us as we are just now, other than they were going to use a warp bomb, I suppose. But I guess it's if we had got the atomic bomb because of observing what the Vulcans were up to, then in theory it's the Vulcans' problem to step in and take the atomic bomb away from us, because it's their fault we have it. Yeah, the worst thing they did was give us Velcro. Yes. <laughs> That's something that happened. Forgotten about that. That is something that happened. <laughs> that is something that indeed happened. Or all that crap that Chekhov left behind in the voyage home. That yeah. <laughs> leaves a phaser behind. It doesn't work, but he leaves it. They can take it apart and find out what it's supposed to do. Or there's the Enterprise episode where it is a sort of World War II equivalent. They capture Reed and Archer and they think that they're genetically enhanced agents from their enemies. And then they go and rescue them using the Suleban stealth ship. Not only do we convince them that their enemies are sending genetically enhanced troops, we've also shown them a ship that can cloak and particle weapons. Good job, guys. <laughs> we've really messed them up. I mean, that's an argument for the Prime Directive existing, but they recognise that was wrong and they recognise that was a bad situation. But it's the idea, if you see a comet hurtling towards a planet, then of course I'm going to move it because... There's people on there that will die if we don't. There's a similar concept in the episode of Next Generation Pen Pals, where there's a long conversation about the Prime Directive. It's a season two episode and Pulaski's there, but don't try to hold that against it. <laughs> Picard gets the senior staff together and they sit around and they chat about the Prime Directive. And Picard asks hypothetical questions. What about this? And then everyone's like, oh yeah. And he's like, well, now we're a bit less secure in our morality, aren't we? It's easy to see that written down and think, yeah, I would happily ignore it. But when you're there and you see that a species is about to die, you can't. The only good part of In the Darkness is Kirk deciding, I am not going to let a species die. We have the means to prevent it and we're going to try and not get seen doing it. Fine. No problem there. They will continue to thrive after that. Of course, they end up seeing the Enterprise and worshipping it, but that's a different problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's for the equivalent of the Cerritos to fly in and sort out at the end, isn't it? <laughs> but that's what happens in that first episode. And I quite like how they tied that to Pike's arc, which we'll talk about. But the way it was tied to, this was our future on Earth. And this is what your future might be if you apply this technology in this way. Look at the struggles we had to go through to get to where we are now. You don't have to do that. You have a choice. The way that Pike just stands there and he respects those people and he says, I'm going to give you the presentation and I'm going to leave the choice up to you because I can't force you to do it. But I like how he does the, I can force you to listen though. 
It's about who has the biggest gun and I have the biggest gun. And then the Enterprise is right there in orbit and you hear the air raid sirens and stuff. That was a cool reveal, or not reveal, but cool thing that, that happened in the episode. And yeah, the way that they approached it was really good. And of course, using the January 6th riots as footage, that really pisses people off. Mm. It really pisses the right kind of people off. The people you want to be annoyed about these <laughs> things, it really pisses them off. I enjoyed that. And it adds fuel to the fire of the people that claiming that Star Trek is woke all of a sudden. It's just left-wing morality plays and it's just preaching and whatever. I like when people get annoyed about the fact that suddenly Star Trek is political. Because it never was before. <laughs> Politics? No, not in Star Trek. No, they've never covered politics and morality in Star Trek. You have to wonder what the people that used to watch Star Trek and now don't like it because it's suddenly political and woke and whatever, you have to wonder what they think they were watching before. Did they just ignore what it was telling you? No, I just don't think it's been as in their face before, maybe. Or they're suddenly realising how things and events are going to be perceived later on. People don't like the consequence of actions or the perception of their actions. Why would the future not look at us as heroes aspect? What do you mean we were the bad guys? They don't like being told that, especially from certain contexts where it's very rare that the villain in a piece is the United States, for example. It's normally when the Americans roll in, it's the heroes rolling in. It's not the villains that are coming into town at that point. So getting that kind of thing held up, I can imagine that peeves people off. Star Trek has always been aspirational America. That's where it was coming from originally. And it's the idea of, here's what a perfect future could look like under these types of values. And that sort of evolved and changed. But broadly speaking, it was very American-centric. For example, we had however many seasons of American captains. Shatner was Canadian, but he was playing American. So Kirk is American, Shatner isn't. And the thing is, the Voyage Home is actually an example of them riffing on that because... They are characters from the 60s transplanted into the 80s. They are fish out of water because they don't belong in that time period because they're 60s TV characters trying to function in the Reagan era. It works on that level as well. I can't take credit for that observation. Someone mentioned that and I thought, that's good. I really find that interesting. It's almost what some of the time travel stories have been missing, isn't it? It's the idea that we can play with that notion. The idea that, no, they don't belong here because they were created in a different era. It's not that they're just from a different era. It's those characters were created outside of that mindset. So it's just interesting in that respect. But using the January 6th riots as historical footage and talking about how that led to the Third World War and then the eugenics wars, which pushes the eugenics wars ahead about 60 years or something. They were supposed to have happened in the 90s in continuity. And, well, they obviously didn't because we had that episode where they went back in time to the 90s and there was no eugenics wars in sight interesting thing i'm reading the forever war at the moment and it was written in the 70s so it was future gazing on what would be happening in 2002 the dizzying heights of 2002 <laughs> so it's very weird when you're reading the future inverted commas as it happens in the past space 1999 space next year space this year it's something that i imagine star trek thought it wouldn't be needing to deal with to a certain extent but because of how much they mention backstories and they've done time travel a lot themselves as well it means that they do start to crash up against the your canon goes against even more of reality than it did before. <laughs> yeah, when the show's still being produced in the times that these things are supposed to have happened. Well, we talked about that during Picard, didn't we? The technology that we saw in the episode where they were in the same year, and it's, those computers aren't in this continuity anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things, ultimately, hate to break it to the listeners, but Star Trek isn't real. It isn't based on our world. 
is loosely based on our history, but there's a certain point into the timeline where it becomes fictional. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to accept some of it. I will let them away with those things. Well, that works on a meta level as well, because Pike is telling the story of a history on Earth where a world was thrown into chaos and... A lot of people died and there was a high price for learning certain lessons and then becoming better. But funnily enough, that is a world where Star Trek doesn't exist because it's the world that Star Trek takes place in. So what Pike is actually saying to that species and what he's saying to the audience is you live in a world where Star Trek can show you a better way, make the better choice and improve the world because you can. That's what science fiction does. It shows you how things can play out, what good science fiction does. I know we have a lot of the young adult stuff where it's a horrible future and teenagers are the answer, apparently. We don't (laughs) want that future either. Once we're throwing kids in a maze or making them fight each other under a dome thing, then we know we've maybe not learned the lessons. I can't remember. I wish I could credit the person who created the little comic online. One of these tech announcements, you know, Apple, Facebook-style announcements, and it's, finally, we've been able to create the torture nexus from the famous (laughs) novel never create the torture nexus (laughs) don't follow this path it's not a guide to following this path please don't on a basic level pike is telling this species you're at a crossroads here you have a choice please make the right one but we're going to leave it in your hands and it's saying to the audience we're at a crossroads please make the right choice and then you can have this future or you can get there the hard way like we did and i do wonder if people are just less comfortable with seeing it thrown in their face in that way and we look at it with our political sensibilities and we think we probably should be listening to what Pike's talking about but no one is Hmm. or no one in positions of influence is we're talking about in the UK we came out of the worst heat wave we have ever had the highest recorded temperatures on record and the only counter argument people that want to ignore it can say is provisionally the highest recorded temperatures on record okay (laughs) well it might be half a degree cooler when they record it officially then whatever But the point is, the country has never been this hot, and it's not supposed to be this hot. And we are choking the planet, we're destroying the planet, and arguably, the point of no return passed a while ago, it depends who you ask. But we have to take the opportunity now to fix it. But the problem is, the people at the top just don't care. They don't want to do it, and they seem to be manufacturing policies that prevent them from doing it at all. That's really concerning, and we are that species that Pike was talking to in that first episode. That's very clearly what the episode is saying. It is not being in any way subtle about it. It's turning to the audience, doing what Star Trek did best and say, this sucks and you can fix it, so please fix it. Does it fall in deaf ears now? I don't know. And did they possibly deliver their message in more subtle ways in the past? Perhaps. But are we also beyond the point of subtlety? I would say we're well beyond the point of subtlety. We do need to beat people over the head with this commentary because otherwise it won't sink in. Who said we were going to be doing politics on today's podcast? (laughs) I'll get off my soapbox now. I'll get off my pedestal. Just like Pike, he was on his dais, wasn't he? He was on a pedestal. I remember him with a pedestal. I don't think he has one. I think he's just standing there. Did you take it from that? Did you take that with the message that the episode was telling us? Oh, uh, yeah, there was definitely overtones of that. I I don't think you're out of line by saying it. Yeah, it's not undertones. It's an orchestra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And you have people arguing that there used to be more subtle in the messaging. And it's like, yeah, but the 90s were a more naive time, weren't they? The early 2000s. Pre-9-11 Star Trek is, you can be a little bit more naive. You can be a little bit more, we're going to give you this message, but we're not going to necessarily beat you over the head with it. It'll be something you think about later, and then you realise, oh, crap, it wormed its way in there. But now it's, no, listen, practically knocking on your forehead saying, listen, this is a problem, please listen. 
I actually think that was probably the only massive messaging episode they did. They did a lot of more contained identity-based messaging, but in terms of broader cultural messaging, that was the biggest example, I think, and it was the first episode. Yeah, I agree. It's also probably the only episode that had a Strange New World in it. Ooh. For a show called Strange New Worlds, there weren't a lot of Strange New Worlds. They did lean into some of the exploration and going out there. It wasn't every week's a new weird planet with an odd species of alien. I'll give you that. I'm not saying that's a criticism. I just think it's funny that the title of the show is this, and then they didn't really go to many Strange New Worlds. I can only really think of two. The other one being the weird morality play one that we'll definitely talk about as well. Let's get back to characters, though. Let's talk about Dr. Mbenga, who is also a legacy character. He was in the original series in a couple of episodes. In this, he's dealing with the upcoming loss of his daughter, who has a terminal diagnosis. He keeps her in the transporter buffer and brings her out every once in a while to read her a bedtime story. And this is one of those things where, technologically speaking, it's we've created this situation to solve a very particular problem. And it's a callback because that's what Scotty does and that's how he survives for 70 years before he's rescued. But anybody that has a terminal illness... Is there not just hospitals full of transporter buffers that they can just hide in until they can find a cure? Yeah, or a form of cryogenics or something by this point, maybe? I don't know. It does raise that question. Maybe there's extra requirements in it, or is it not medically sound? Would the British Medical Association go in a fit if you kept a patient in the transporter buffer? I don't know. If it's an approved thing, I mean, how many terrible transporter mishaps have we seen (laughs) in Star Trek history? In theory, it's essentially suspending the person, isn't it? So while they're in suspension, it's not progressing, but as soon as you bring them out, you're nibbling away at the time that they've got left. Because there's a lot of people that have got the cryogenic thing of, it frees me until there's a cure to my condition. And also until you figure out how to unfreeze people. Because we know how to freeze people, but we can't wake them up. Yeah, we don't necessarily know that we're freezing you in the right way so that you can be reanimated either. <laughs> yeah. We know the theory behind freezing you. We don't know if it'll actually work. You've got a lot of reliance in that company not going bust in the coming years. Or having a power cut. Or having a big oh dear. Well, that's a joke in Futurama, isn't it? Days without a power outage, however many on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting dilemma for them to put there the doctor who's able to cure everyone else but is unable to cure his own daughter the amount of work he's putting into it the fact he managed to sneak her on board and get her into the transporter buffer is an interesting one that was not a known thing until a bit later on how did he manage to pull that one off how's your daughter doctor she's fine back on earth honest you don't need childcare. just put your kids in the transporter when you're Going out for dinner or something. Yeah, we've had a message on the little holographic phone thingy that says your daughter hasn't turned up for school in, I don't know, the six months that you've been on deployment on the Enterprise. (laughs) You don't happen to be concerned about your missing daughter, do you, Doctor? (laughs) Considering the mum isn't in the picture, so we know that she's not with her, so what have you done to your daughter, Doctor? (laughs) I thought it was an interesting dilemma that put him in a situation. I thought the episode where that got resolved was equal parts hilarious and kind of destroyed me a little bit at the end as well but we'll talk about that episode because i have thoughts on that episode do you now do you have thoughts it was a long-running thing especially in the episodes i'm trying to remember one but basically the one where the planet that's continuously sacrificing children yes (laughs) in that episode there was the hint of oh there might be a way to cure this condition or here's a bit of research that might help you or put you down the right path to curing it and i thought that was the angle that they were going to go down rather than the way it was resolved 
Yeah, well, in that case, the solution was dropped in his lap. That would have worked. Because mm. he asks the other doctor and he's like, oh, yeah, easily. It's day one stuff for us. That's no problem. We could do it in five minutes down on the planet. How about I send you a patient? He's like, nah, can't do that. Why not? Because that's our technology and we don't share it. Well, that's not fair. The Federation don't share technology. It's like, yeah, but we do medical stuff. If we can share medical stuff, we will. And then it's like, well, we don't, so screw off. Yeah, if we came over someone wounded in the woods, we would help them out. And this is the space equivalent, isn't it? We're not asking you to share the technology. I'll send her down there by herself. But if you could cure her, that'd be swell. Thanks. Yeah, cheers. As yeah. maybe a thank you for not sending you down to the planet. That was an extra complication and that sort of annoys me as well. That's a really questionable episode but the Mbenga arc I really liked there's little things in there such as even though she's not dead he has taken her life from her by locking her in the transporter because she only appears every now and again and she gets a bedtime story read to her and then she goes back so she's sort of aging by maybe a couple hours each time and they're spending time with each other and I think that's maybe something they could have played with over a longer timeline just say it takes them years or decades even to come up with a cure you almost have this montage of her rematerializing and just seeing her dad get progressively older and then he figures out a cure maybe 30 years later or something like that when he's a really old man and she's still a child and there's that weird separation in the relationship. We've seen that in other stuff. Interstellar is an example of that happening where Matthew McConaughey's character stays the same age because he goes on planets with time dilation so his daughter ages exponentially and then by the time he gets back she's really old and dying and he's barely aged a day another Star Trek example is in The Visitor the great reset button Deep Space Nine episode where Jake was fixated on saving Cisco from being stuck in subspace or whatever it was and Cisco appears periodically and every time he does Jake's that bit older mm. again it's the same thing so they could have done that that's maybe something you do in the last episode as in the here's where the crew end up and decades later he's still at it but they Resolve it neatly in this season, and she gets a happy ending of sorts, as in she gets to go and explore the universe, or a nebula anyway, thanks to a sentient nebula creature thing that lives in the nebula, and she's like, oh, it's been years for me, but it's only been five minutes for you, kind of thing. I thought emotionally that was satisfying, but I found it was just one of those stories that they got to a certain point and they thought, oh, we probably should resolve this now. Yeah, it was a storyline where they were like, well, we don't want this to be a two-season storyline. We don't want to still be doing this in three seasons' time. We need an out. And it's either got to be that the time comes and there's nothing more that can be done, or there's a solution. Now, is it going to be the doctor finding a miracle cure, or is it going to be someone gives a piece of technology, or just they come across a thing that saves her, and it turns out the thing is this lonely, sentient nebula thing. And that's what they end up going with. It's maybe not the way you expect it to end. But I still found it quite me towards the end, especially when you get for her the perception of time as being totally different. She's aged, she's had 30 years worth of experiences or whatever the line was in the mere minutes, seconds, camera shifts that have happened since she's disappeared. And it's one of those things they only brought up intermittently as well. They brought it up in the third episode and it was a point of understanding between Una and Mbenga. It was that idea of, well, you're hiding something too and I understand what that means and... I'm going to give you some extra power from the warp core and it'll be our little secret. So 
don't worry about it. Then it doesn't really come up again until the episode where he gets faced with the prospect of a cure. And the fact that he accepts that the cure will slip through his fingers, I didn't buy. I feel like that's something he would stop at nothing to make sure happened. He'd make it work somehow. There'd be some way of getting around it. It was unclear how many people on the ship knew about this to begin with, because it was only really Una. So I guess Pike never found out or anyone else. I didn't understand how many people knew. I don't know if it's something that Una would go to Pike and say she authorizes the extra feed from the warp core or the resilient backup that keeps them off the grid so that if they are doing something for ship's functions they're not going to inadvertently switch off that pod but i don't know what hoops she would need to go to to get that approved and through and happen does the question ever come up of why are we running this separate feed to the doctor's little transporter thing i guess it's well i'm the first officer and because i said so is probably good yeah, enough. Chain of command says, I have said so, and you're going to do it. Thanks. And Hammer's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. I don't mind. I do think Una was the only one who knew, because it does get brought up again, and Una comes to speak to him about it and says, remember that you're the chief medical officer. I know your daughter's important, but that job's important too, and don't get caught up between the two of them and that kind of stuff. But there's opportunities throughout the season that it could have naturally brought up. For example, the fourth episode where power was at a premium because the Gorn were attacking and they were stuck in the accretion disk of a black hole or wherever they were. So you could add that point because he had a lot of medical stuff to deal with in that episode. You could have maybe had him be distracted from his medical duties by trying to keep the transporter online, for example. I think that's the only major example of the Enterprise being that heavily damaged. Or you have the episode where it gets captured. He could be sitting in the cell in that pirate base thinking, what if they find her in the transporter buffer? That kind of stuff. They could have just kept reminding you of it periodically, without it necessarily being a big part of the story, but it could have been a part of his character throughout. It's something that you could have continually referenced. And it might have been interesting to see him distracted from the wide-scale medical emergency that was happening in that fourth episode by worrying about the transporter losing power. Stuff like that. That's true. They could have made it more of a thing through that. I kind of forgot during that pirate episode, he's separated from her. His way of protecting her is the fact that she's on the ship and the ship has just been taken away by someone. In that episode, no one ever behaves as if they're in any real danger, which makes that episode a bit problematic. They've taken our ship, but we'll get it back. No worries. So no one's that bothered. The enemies are stupid anyway, so it doesn't get treated with any seriousness, which makes all that a problem. You don't even see them taking the pirate ship. They've just done it. Yeah, but again, that's we need to do this with brevity now because the episode is a certain amount of time. Unless we're turning this into a two-episode thing where if you were to play it as your season finale or your mid-season finale before a break or something, the end of the episode is them in a cell with a little window that they can see out and they watch the Enterprise disappear into the distance and that's the button for your middle season break will they get the enterprise back yes they will but it makes it more of a thing and then you've got an entire episode which is them trying to get the enterprise back yeah but we did see one shot episodes where the enterprise or the hero ship or the space station got taken over and they managed to resolve it within an episode and they made the villains threatening so it's possible they just didn't do it in that way and i think that episode was confused between comedy and drama in that way because when captured by the pirates, they were clearly incompetent, and then Pike was treating them as incompetent. If I make these people a good meal, they will turn on you immediately. That kind of stuff. It's maybe the confidence of your enemy. You've got Angel, they've went over to the Enterprise, they've taken it over, they've taken their best people to take the ship, and they've left the rest to watch the prisoners. And the guy in charge, apparently. And the guy in charge. So you go and watch the prisoners. That's your one job. You watch the prisoners and you rendezvous at whatever we're supposed to rendezvous, or whatever the plan is. And it's, you've maybe not left your 
A team on the other ship, and that's where it comes in. But you kind of had two ships being played two different ways. The stuff on Enterprise was more serious. That was the Spock relationship stuff and the fool around in Nurse Chapel and playing all that. Meanwhile, on the other ship, you've got Pike... So in disconsent amongst the crew and cooking for the <laughs> captors and the little in-jokes about, oh, should we do what we did on this other planet? Or the last time we lost the ship to pirates. <laughs> it just made me think of Thor Ragnarok. Do get help or not do get, get help. help. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get help. But no, we're not going to do that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> it was a bit where Pike was like, I've convinced them to sell us to the Klingons. Does that buy you more time? I don't know. It takes longer to get hold of the Klingons, I guess. <laughs> Hang on, these people have captured you and you've told them the best people to sell you to? That's a very strange way of doing things. They were just idiots. I think that's basically what you take from it and it's uneven in that way. Let's get on to Pike, the man himself. I left him till last because he's the captain and deserves the most attention and he has the biggest character arc here. I was very conflicted about this and I still am. Obviously we know from Discovery Season 2 that he gets a glimpse of his future he knows that at some point he will be horribly injured and confined to a chair. And we know that that chair from the original series will only allow him to communicate by beeping once for yes and twice for no, which is kind of hilariously dated now because Stephen Hawking's chair is better than that, or was better than that, because Stephen Hawking's dead and doesn't use it anymore. But again, it's a 60s thing. This seems super advanced for us in the 60s. The fact that he's alive is a technological marvel, so... We'll just go with it. And they did a good job of updating that chair, as in they don't go into the detail of the one beep for yes, two beeps for no. They just show you it and it's horrific because his face is all burned and he can't communicate in the way that he used to. My assumption based on that discovery flash forward was that he got a glimpse that this would happen to him at some point and didn't know when it was. Then suddenly we start this show and it's, oh yeah, I know what day it happens. I know what time it happens. I know who's there when it happens. I know everything. I know exactly when it is, and I know how much time I have left. So on that token, there's a few things they could have done with it. One is Pike thinks he's invincible and behaves as if he's invincible. Throughout the season, he knows any decision he makes will at least result in his survival. Can't count on anyone else around him, but definitely him, because he has to get to that point. He knows that's his end point, and he doesn't doubt it. He starts to doubt it when it's brought up, but he doesn't immediately doubt it. He thinks his future is indelible. He talks about that early on. So they could have done that with him behaving recklessly and maybe him learning a lesson about, well, yeah, I'm invincible, but everybody else isn't. So that's where he gets on the, I'm just going to behave like normal. I'm going to act like normal. Because he just acts like normal, really. He doesn't reference it. I found that an issue because I would have quite liked to see them do something such as maybe the fourth episode. They could have set up a scenario where he goes down to engineering and that reminds him of that moment. And then he hesitates because he wonders if this is it. And then it's not. But you can only do that once. But they could have done that once. And that would have been interesting. So what did you think of the fact that he knew everything? All the details. Do you think that was a good idea? Or would you rather have seen it be more vague from his perspective? I don't know, actually. I mean, I can see both angles of it. I'm kind of with you. I would have preferred if it was a bit more vague. I didn't have too much of a problem with knowing who was there. Or at least if he knew maybe surnames or stuff that got shouted out at the time and he's put that together. But him knowing the time, date, place, reason, the full shooting match kind of goes, okay. And 
I get that the Klingon time monks had already said, this is it, once you go, it's set in stone. They hint a little bit where it's like, oh yeah, I've Googled everyone. I've Googled all the people that were there, all the folk that I know that they are. Here they all are now as kids in the Federation. They're all in the database. They all exist. The monks didn't lie to me. This is going to happen because, look, the people are real. And how would they have that otherwise? As well as the aspect, particularly towards the finale, where he gets that flash as soon as he hears the kid's name. I've come face to face with someone that will be in that room on that date. I don't know if it's just not been as tangible until that point. And you get certain flashbacks. They lean heavily into the fact that he's got the fireplace in his quarters. He's sitting there with the open fire. There's a lot of that sort of stuff going on in there. I can see your point of view. If he knew less, then he would maybe be thinking, well, tomorrow could be the day. Or it could be in years' time, I don't know. I've just got to keep doing what I'm doing until it happens. Rather than the way that they've done it there. I don't know. Maybe not knowing as many details, and then that lets you play with it a bit. For Pike being invincible, or thinking he's invincible... That could have been an angle to do. That could have been an episode marker where he's on a away mission and ends up walking into the crossfire <laughs> on a fight or something because it's like, well, I'm going to win. It's that cockiness. Someone asks to fight him in a duel or something in ritual combat and he's like, well, I'm going to win. Maybe seeing that sort of side, but that kind of plays against type for the character, doesn't it? In my opinion, I think the writers have played that aspect right because I don't think he'd be that reckless. I think he's maybe fought it through a bit more. You only get him trying to change it when he meets the kid for the first time. And then that almost solidifies and he said, oh no, I'm going to change this. I'm going to try and change it. They've told me it can't be changed. I'm going to prove that it can. And then you get the consequences of it in the finale. Yeah. And you see him thinking about whether it's possible to change it because he just flatly accepted it before. And it's not until Una says, are you sure it's not preventable? And he's like, yeah. And so why are you sure? Well, I don't know. And then he looks up the names and then they don't really bring it up again until he hooks up with the woman on that planet. And he says, I'm going to almost die soon. And she says, yeah, but we've got great medical technology that we'll give to you, but not to Mbenga's child for some reason. (laughs) That gives him a measure of hope. I suppose that there is a happy ending potentially in store for him there, as in that isn't the end. There is maybe things that can be done. You may not know from the original series, but there is something that is done. It doesn't fix the problem, but it lets him live in a happy little fantasy world where he doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't know that. We do, but he doesn't. Or I do. I don't know if you do. But now you do, because I've just told you. So the audience potentially knows that, but he doesn't. I had issues with it because Pike now knows so much about the future. (laughs) He knows what the Romulans look like. He knows about this pivotal event that needs to have Kirk involved. He knows when he's going to suffer that accident. He knows a lot. He's not just some guy out there doing a job. He is quite knowledgeable about certain things it's a bit of a weird one but also it's a bit of a commentary on the notion of prequels because you watch a prequel and you know well these aren't going to die because it's set before the thing that i've seen this person in before so it's a bit like i know what happens to me too so we're on the same page audience says pike he doesn't ever say that but you know what i mean it plays into that time traveler thing and all the time travel shows we did a very good time travel podcast by the way you should go back and listen to it well some of us have it'll be in the show notes i've heard it but i've just not recorded it yet (laughs) it plays into a lot of the time travel stuff but almost from an opposite point of view so he's got to think going forward and it's not as prevalent in his life just now but as that time gets closer he's still can't change what's going to happen. So this is his earliest intervention point. He was thinking about sending those letters, convince them not to go into Starfleet or whatever. That's the start of his plan to 
stop the events happening of that day. Yeah, or not sign up for that mission, whatever it is. Yeah, don't sign up for that mission. Don't do this thing. When you read this, you'll have had an invite to do whatever. You're going to turn it down. You're going to take a leave of absence for this month. Trust me. But as those events get closer, it's going to be even more awkward for him to avoid doing anything about it. That's the bigger aspect is when someone says, oh, we've only got a certain amount of funding. Should we put extra shielding around the warp core or should we use it to decorate the quarters on deck five? Think you should decorate deck (laughs) five? (laughs) This is perfectly safe. Nothing will happen. Why would you put extra shielding on the warp core? That's the aspect where it's going to be almost impossible for him not to end up impacting his fate because he knows so many details it's impossible for him not to end up doing something inadvertently that stops it it'll be interesting when they inevitably do that episode because they will it will be probably the last episode of the show where they'll show what happens and well it wouldn't be like titanic because nobody on the titanic knew how it was going to end but certainly for the audience it will be because we know how it ends and pike knows how it ends so it'll be him going through the motions of that day wondering when it's about to kick off well maybe he knows when it's about to kick off but there'll be something that happens it'll be like oh there's something happening in engineering and he's like oh god now it's the moment we've all been waiting for i have to go and he does it and it all happens we don't know how much background knowledge he has about what causes the accident or whatever we don't know if he only ever saw the snapshot of that moment he knew enough to know exactly who was there and who didn't make it out so he knew who he was able to save and who he wasn't you don't know if he knows the details of the entire day maybe he does maybe he doesn't but there will come a point where that moment of realization hits he'll realize he's on this mission with those particular people And he'll just be waiting for the point where it all kicks off. And that might be interesting to see play out. I don't know if they're going to do a bit of hand wavium in a future episode of them doing, be it a mind meld, the university's multi-tool for mind tricks, or something else to try and purge his memory of that future gaze Maybe he's done. I don't want to live with this knowledge. Get rid of it. I can't live with this knowledge. My instincts are going to kick in and I'm going to want to save myself. And there's nothing I can do to stop that apart from not have the knowledge of what's going to happen. But it's too late to erase that knowledge because, okay, you don't have the memory of what's going to happen, but then you would have the memory of randomly looking up these kids. I don't know if it's a possibility. It runs counter to the lesson that he learns in this season anyway if he suddenly forgets it. The whole point is in this final episode is that he ends the episode by fully accepting the fact that this has to happen and his place in history is unfortunate for him, but it's also important. He has to take that place so that something else can happen. And then his future self tells him, there's nothing you can do to prevent this. Well, there is. There's plenty you can do to prevent it, but it'll always end the same way. I really like the way that they actually made it more personal, as in by simplifying it through him saving himself means that he trades his fate for Spock. So... Him deciding to live and make it through that scenario means that it just happens to Spock instead at some point. No matter what timeline he tries to do, no matter what set of circumstances he tries to prevent, because it could be, okay, future me, show me every possible future that can come from this and I will prevent Spock from being injured in every single one of them. You can't do that because I guess they've established that time is somewhat sentient in a way and it will try to correct itself if you try and mess with it. So that's what's happening here in a way, because there's a balance that needs to be struck. And if not Pike, then it's someone close to him. That's the price that he pays. And then for Pike, it's a very simple decision. I am not going to let someone else suffer the fate that I can take on myself. And that's as simple for him. I can save my friend by doing this. So therefore, I'm going to do it. And then that's it. The situation is resolved. The issue is put to bed and we can't bring it up ever again because it's been resolved. 
And I felt like they maybe put it to bed earlier in the season at the end of the first episode, because Spock's advice in that episode is just behave as you would normally behave and then things will play out as they're going to play out. And he comes to the end of the episode and thinks, right, okay, just going to have to do that then. And then he keeps thinking about it over the course of the season. And he does get things brought up. It's the bit where he says to Uhura, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And he's like, oh, I know where I see myself in 10 years. It's not great. Poor choice of words on my part, that kind of stuff. But then by the end of the season, it's the definitive, okay, I understand why it needs to be me that suffers this, because otherwise it'll be Spock, and I don't want that to happen. And that's fine. That's a great resolution. It's a very personal, very understandable resolution, and it's very in keeping with Pike's character as well, is this beacon of compassion. It makes sense, especially with it being Spock. So like you say, it gives that more personal angle to it, the personal consequence. It wasn't... If you don't do this, some other random somewhere else, it happens to them. No, you impact Spock's future. And by the hazard of that, we know. It's another nod wink to the viewer who knows more. This guy's kind of important going forward, by the way. You don't really want to impact him. If you ever want peace with the Romulans, he's your guy. He's going to do it. Yeah, he does peace with the Romulans and a lot of other stuff. So maybe don't. When I first saw the final episode, I thought they were maybe just going to do brief vignettes across different original series episodes to show why Pike shouldn't be involved in those missions. Keep putting him at different decision points that Kirk's had in whatever decision he makes. Is I guess the hint that they were doing there is this initial decision is enough to set the trajectory of the Federation in just a completely different path. Your original series episodes after that point just wouldn't happen because the trajectory and what happens to the Federation is now totally different we're at war with the romulans yeah we're at war with the romulans it isn't patrol neutral zone anymore it's war you think of how many episodes of the next generation were well we're at the neutral zone again we're just going to hang around on our side and not peek our way across the border because that's an act of war we'll talk about the finale of course because mm. some interesting stuff in there and in terms of pike in a more broader light i loved the portrayal of him throughout the season. Anson Mount is just insanely magnetic. And I'm sure you've seen the memes online about his hair. The Pike's Peak, as they call it. Ah, nice. I've been up Pike's Peak. Not a euphemism. <laughs> but not that one. <laughs> I've been up once on the Cog Railway and I drove up on a 4x4. Oh, anyway, go. carry on. <laughs> That's very Pike. It's one of those Star Trek mobile games we're talking at Comic-Con because they've put Pike in it now. That version of Pike. And they were talking about how they had to alter their code a bit to accommodate his hair. I don't know what they mean by that, but apparently they had to patch their game in order to support his hair. It's very special hair. It requires a full update to the hair animation <laughs> tool. Crazy. But it's command style throughout that very informal command style that he had. It's formal-ish, but not super formal. He calls people by their first name on the bridge and things like that. He's very supportive. He's one of those managers that no one has, isn't he? I'm going to really encourage you. I'm going to really help you. And when he gives people orders or whenever people suggest stuff, he just trusts that they know what they're doing and he just lets them get on with it. All really commendable stuff. He's Picard if he'd lightened up, I think, command style-wise almost. Yeah, he's sort of a merger of a few, isn't he? I was almost putting him closer to Archer. Picard's a bit more closed off from the crew, whereas you've got Pike inviting everyone to his quarters for dinner. It's almost the revolving door thing. I quite liked, was it the second last episode? And someone comes in and isn't wanting any food, but actually he's cooked them waffles. And then it's, yeah, his lands come in and then they do the briefing. And the briefing's happening around the food. And everyone's able to predict what they want to put on the waffles and all that sort of stuff. He's a very personable captain. And Anson Mount is 
perfect for doing that. We both saw him at Destination Star Trek in Birmingham. Yes. Along with, I think it was Ethan Peck that was Ethan there Ethan Peck well. was there too, yeah. And I think we both came away from that saying, we want these two to get a show. They need to get a show, right? They're going to get a show. <laughs> Tell us he's going to be all right and he's going to get his own show. Right? The dynamic in that was there and it seems quite genuine. And the fact that they've played into his strengths into Pike as a character is really, really good. You hit the nail on the head. He's the boss that you want rather than the boss that you have. <laughs> he is listening. He is taking feedback from people. He's happy to admit when he's wrong and take the advice. You got that in the first Gorn episode where it was, this is a trap, activate shields and get everything sorted now because something's not right. You need to listen. And he does. He follows that advice, despite the fact that it's being shouted across and it's maybe not chain of command style, but he follows the advice and it works. A supportive character, a supportive captain, makes good decisions and you've already covered the fact that he embodies quite a lot of Starfleet's ideals. You normally get that with the captains that we feature on the show, is normally that they've got to be of an even higher standard than the rest because your dodgy admirals and random captains who have made terrible decisions will appear on the show, so you need the captain of the ship that we're focusing on to be better than the best. Well, we have a good admiral on this show, Admiral April. Yeah, we've got another one of the good admirals, which is really disappointing for me that just assumed that every admiral was completely incompetent <laughs> or evil. Yeah, April seems to know what he's doing. I suppose in terms of having everyone round for dinner, that's a bit of a Cisco trait as well. That's something he would do. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of command style in that he's not a micromanager, people tell him, this is what I need to do. And he says, yeah, go off and do it, whatever. I think there's only once or twice where he says you have... An hour when they say, I need two hours or something like that. That does come up. The usual captain barking orders. I need ten minutes. You've got three. Well, okay. Well, it's not going to be done then, really. Because I still need ten minutes. Mm. That's how long it takes. There's a couple of moments that I found were a bit badly written for him, though. And those were specifically little character beats. Such as in the third episode where he was stuck on the planet with Spock. He was a ball of stress. He was panicking and acting like he didn't know how to control the situation. And... That's at odds with how experienced he is as a captain. And then in the fourth episode, you get the bit where he has to order the bulkhead getting locked off. And it's before one of the lower decks crewmen can make it through. And Spock turns around to him and says, you made the right decision. And he says, well, why doesn't it feel like it? That's lazy writing to convey that to the audience. Pike already knows that. He's been a captain for long enough. He's had to make the tough calls. He shouldn't have to be reminded. Sometimes you're going to have to let someone die, otherwise you'll lose the ship. It shouldn't be signposted. The way he acted and the way his face was after that decision and hearing that the crew member didn't make it was enough. He didn't need to say it. Yeah, he could have conveyed that just by like sinking his head and going, ugh. Well, maybe not exactly that, but it could have been conveyed in a more sophisticated way rather than Spock saying, it was the right choice, Captain, and Pike saying, well, why doesn't it feel like the right choice? That lifted me straight out. No, it's not your first day, Pike. It's not the first time you've ever done that. And even have that a bit earlier in the season when he's hung up on the fact that people will die and he will almost die, that kind of thing, where he says, this won't be anybody's last day as part of his rousing speech to the crew. And everyone's like, this is awkward. What's, what's wrong with him? And then he confides in Spock about how he's feeling and stuff, which makes sense because they're the only two that know what's going on. And then you had that bit where they interfered in the planet because it was their fault. And Admiral April says, the only reason you're not going to prison is because the reason that you broke the Prime Directive is classified. We're not allowed to talk about it. So you got off on that basis. <laughs> that was really clever. Well chosen with your technicality. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you had a similar bit later on as well when they were trying to talk to that species that wanted to join or that didn't want to join the Federation that were thinking about it. And he was just honest with them. He just said, well, here's the state of the Federation at this point in time. If it were me, I might not want to join either. And they appreciated the honesty and they appreciated that he saw things from their point of view. And that's what influenced their decision. I thought that was interesting. Just a stand-up guy. Yeah, he's a smart negotiator. He managed to spot something in there and went for it. Yeah. Next up is a bit on the storytelling. I think we both agree it was definitely episodic. You can point to every episode and look at, that was the one where that happened, as opposed to Discovery. And I don't mean that as a criticism of Discovery, it's just the structure is different. But if I was to ask you, what happens in episode six of season four of Discovery, you would think, I don't know, because it's just part of the overall tapestry of the storytelling, really. So yes, they carried out their promise of being episodic. Well done. And it was kind of a relief as well. Not that I think the storytelling in the other shows has been bad, but it was a nice change from some of the stuff that we've got where more and more shows are going for the story told over a season. It was a little palate cleanser, I would say. Like I said earlier, if you don't like the DMA plot and Discovery, then you're screwed. You're stuck with it for the whole season. Yeah. If you don't like the season-long arc that they're doing for Picard season two, just as I did, I hated that story, you're stuck with it for the whole season. Whereas in this... There's episodes I didn't like, but the next one might be better, which is good. So that brings us neatly on to our best and worst episodes. Let's leave the finale out of it for now. Let's only think about the first nine episodes, because I've got a section on the finale. Let's go with negative first. So let's rise against first. Rise against negative episodes. Your least favourite episodes. Least favourite. Probably for me, it was the Everyone's Got a Virus episode. That one... I just didn't enjoy as much. It didn't tie into as much for me. I've seen that kind of story quite a lot and it didn't really push many buttons. It did have some interesting bits in it and you get some reveals about Una and stuff in it, but it wasn't the strongest, I thought. Yeah, I didn't think that was the strongest one and I thought that was going to be the worst of the season until I kept going. It's actually almost a bit like in the way the movies are. The even number episodes were largely my favourite, and the odd number <laughs> episodes were largely not my favourite. Flip episode 8 and 9, and then that mantra almost works. I didn't like Spock and Mark that much, because I didn't appreciate the hijinks. Mm. But also I think that most of the comedy didn't really land. I thought the body-switching stuff, they didn't do enough with it. I don't think the episode would change that much if the body-switching hadn't happened. I kind of agree with you. I wasn't much of a fan of that episode either it's probably between those two for the ones that i didn't have as much fun watching i didn't enjoy it as much if you're going to do a body swap thing lean into comedy body swap hijinks maybe or go for it from that angle it was the fact that it's happening at the same time as these negotiations because of course it is it's all that sort of business going on it did the little reveals about different bits and pieces that was the cyborg reveal one that was the angel episode was that the angel episode sorry i thought that was the spock and mark one you're, you're right it was the angel one to prings in both that's probably why you're confused to prings in both that's why i'm getting my head all mixed up but i'm with you i wasn't as much of a fan of that episode there was things i did like about it for example the use of chapel in that episode with her being against monogamy and how that's considered a well not necessarily against monogamy it just doesn't work for her at this point in her life because she's on a starship and she doesn't have much time to settle down with anybody so she doesn't really want serious relationships in that way and the fact that that's seen as a valid life choice no one questions it 
It's fine. There's no slut-shaming, so to speak. I like the fact that she was willing to break off her date in order to help Spock and give that advice, despite the fact it's coming more from a place of emotion that maybe Spock wouldn't appreciate. She does give him the advice. I think that's also the one with Enterprise Bingo. It is. It is the one with Enterprise Bingo, so I've got to give it points for Enterprise Bingo because I thought that was a bit of fun. As much as we talked about how that fits in with Una and Lan's relationship... It was quite a fun little bit of canon that you could almost see being a lower decks sort of thing. People completing Enterprise Bingo and all the different random tasks that they had to do. Walking out onto the hull, having a phaser fight in the corridor and all this sort of silly stuff that they were just getting behind. I kind of like that. I wish the montage was longer though. It's only like two things they show you, three things. Yeah, you only see a few things. In the lines, I think you get that they've done this, that and the other. Did someone's pad get shown? You see the list, yeah. So you get some of what they've done, but maybe I would have liked to see a longer bit of that. Restoring the flavour of chewing gum by going in the transporter buffer and then coming out again. That was a good one. (laughs) And the going out in the hall thing, that was the one that I didn't really buy as such because how are you going to get away with that just normally? How is that going to not be noticed? Yeah, how are people of lesser rank getting away with it? You've got a security chief and your first officer there that can deactivate the alarms on that section of the deck or whatnot to not notice phaser fire well it was immediately we've had unauthorized access to an airlock that was an alarm that went off so what are you disabling alarms to do i don't know how often is this happening where the ship is getting breached because people are switching off the alarms (laughs) and everything i kind of wish they'd done a bit more of the lower dexy stuff you could have had buffer time in this show just the yeomen and ensigns and so forth just goofing off You could have had that being a conversation with Ahura at some point. Someone introducing her to buffer time or a side comment about buffer time to her or something. Like she's looking for her next task and they're just like, chill out. You've got 10 minutes. Just have a break. That's something you want to see more of. And I do think that they managed to do good work with enterprise culture in general. It does feel like a functioning workplace. At least the little smatterings you get of it. Hmm. That's good. Even though you don't really see many prominent extras as such, prominent side characters... There was no, like, Barclay, he's not a main character type. Everybody knows him. I suppose Chapel's your closest there, but she's the main cast, so you've got that. Yeah, that episode wasn't really my favourite. Another episode I didn't really like was, I've talked about earlier, the one where they went to the planet with the advanced medical tech, the sacrificing children one. The reason I didn't like that as much is because it had a really interesting idea, and it's actually ripped off, not ripped off, inspired by a short sci-fi story that's about a similar choice. I forget what the actual premise of the story is, but it's very similar It's about the idea of willful ignorance. The idea, everyone knows this happens, but everyone accepts it because that's how society runs. And then again, it asks the question about the Federation, doesn't it? It's this whole, well, your privilege is possibly on the backs of people who are less fortunate. And then it never answers that question. You don't know if the Federation is built on that or not. It doesn't tell you. So it's a bit of a non-point. And the morality of it wasn't explored as well as it could have been. I know there's a thought experiment that you could do about the whole thing about everyone in the world is given a million pounds, but someone you don't know will die. So you're offered a million pounds, but in exchange for that, someone you don't know will die. Do you take the money? Yeah, it's like you say, the thought experiment is the planet-wide or the society-wide thing of you all get to live in this technological opulence that you've got. However, the chance of someone related to you ever ending up being the sacrifice that's needing to be made is incredibly slim. Do you still go ahead with it? Do you still accept it? Do you protest against it? Because the other option is that all of this disappears and you're back to more primitive technology, inverted couple. Well, you don't know what the alternative is. That's part of the problem. Well, yeah. Again, this is the problem with short 
episodes to be able to cover a big concept because they kept for obvious reasons for the suspense and whatnot they were keeping what the whole purpose is by about halfway through the episode you've got the impression that oh there's something more sinister at play but it's not quite been revealed at that point it seems that if the opposition to this scheme had wanted to make it known then maybe they should have just told starfleet (laughs) in between disrupting the sacrifices maybe could have sent a message to starfleet and said oh by the way just so you know if you're in negotiations with this lot this is what they're doing to keep society afloat that's another prime directive problem because pike ends up learning about this and then having to deal with the fact there's nothing he can do about it yeah he's not allowed to interfere yeah and then he reflects on it in the sense that he looks out the window and looks morbid but I would have liked him to do more with it, maybe as a conversation with April about it, and they chat about it as high-ranking officers. He has a conversation with Una about it, and they reflect on what's gone on here and what they feel like they should have done or what they wanted to do. But you needed more detail as to how that society worked. The rebels are referenced, but they're never even seen, really. And then you have that whole thing with the first servant, that's what they called the kid, his father distancing himself emotionally and it's the idea of I have to do that because I can't think of this kid as my son because I know I'm going to lose him there's that side of it there's little bits in there that they could have made the focus but they don't make any of them the focus and then you have Pike's attraction to that woman as well which doesn't come to much either as such it doesn't really play in apart from the fact that that's put in almost to have Pike trust or sort of not question it as much as he might have done otherwise not that that's played heavily but you can sort of go okay this is the reason that pike's maybe not questioned or asked too many questions about it because oh it's someone that i trust why would they be doing something a bit sinister in the background that they think is totally acceptable she invites him to the ceremony to see the ceremony it wasn't that she was trying to hide it it was merely well you didn't actually ask the details of what he was doing that was never discussed it was just oh yeah he's important it wasn't oh yeah, this is what we're going to do to him. But if he had asked, he would have been told. That was the reason for the relationship thing to be in there, was just to stop the inquisitive mind. Because if it had been, we came across a shuttle, it was a completely random alien species that we've never met before, someone that I've never met before, you'd imagine they would be asking a lot more questions. Because the people that are asking more questions are the doctor in Nurse Chapel, are asking more questions down in sickbay than Pike is. Yeah, which creates a storytelling issue, as in, you haven't really told us a story here, you haven't given us all the variables in order for us to come to a conclusion here. Obviously, there's the innate thing about sacrificing children is bad, but like I say, I don't know what the alternative is. (laughs) What happens if they don't do this? Do their cities fall out of the sky? I don't know. Yeah, what part of society collapses or what is it actually running that they need this for have they investigated enough about what an alternate thing is or is it just now we've stopped even investigating what an alternate option is this is the way it is well Alora says they were looking into alternatives yeah there was a line of an artificial brain or a grown brain doesn't work i think it's one of those things that is a interesting concept it's an interesting story it needed to almost be a short film or movie length thing for it to work I think it's too big a concept to try and deal with in a single episode. I thought it was an interesting episode, but there wasn't enough that you could do with it in the time that they had. I think if they'd refined the focus, they would have been able to do it better, though. I think if it had been about Pike learning about this culture, so then you get to see, here's how our society works, here's the classes that exist within our society, etc., etc., and then you get the reveal of, oh, here's the dark underbelly to this paradise that we've got for ourselves here here's the price of all this instead they 
like I say, they tried to pick up different elements and throw them at you. In some ways, it was an Mbenga plot. In some ways, it was a Pike reflecting on his future plot. In some ways, it was a Prime Directive story. In some ways, it was some kind of commentary on the fact that we in the developed world knowingly stand on the shoulders of the developing world in terms of the technology that we use. For example, the components in our phone are unethically sourced, all that stuff. But it's the good place, isn't it? It's impossible to live a truly ethical life if you live in the developed world because someone is always suffering to bring you the clothes that you wear or something like that. It's the price we pay for that kind of convenience. And with more work, that could have been what that story was telling us rather than it being all these different little things. You don't really need to fully develop the young boy. They did put effort into, oh, look how brilliant he could be if he wasn't hooked up to a machine and drained of life until he dies and then needs replaced with another brilliant child. They did that, but I think they could have just gone with, well, they're sacrificing a child. That's just bad by itself. You don't really necessarily need the, look how brilliant he could be. Look how bright a future he could have if we didn't drain him on this machine. So I do think they could have done it in the time allowed. I just think it would have had to be a very specific story. They would have had to tell it in a very specific way. But that's not what they did. And that's why it's one of my least favourite episodes. My least favourite episode, though, is the eighth one. The cosplay kings and sorcerers and whatever else one. (laughs) As much as I liked the ending with the father-daughter thing, I really didn't like the episode. It reminded me of any of those episodes of Star Trek where they do those sorts of things. I just find them all pretty tedious. And... I wasn't able to really have any fun with it. It does nothing for the characters either because none of them seem to embody anything that they need to learn about or anything related to them. Pike is a coward, sort of snivelling coward type. Ahura is in charge as opposed to being the least in charge. La'an is much more outgoing and silly. Spock is a wizard. He's the evil brother rather than having an evil brother, I suppose. Oh, yeah, okay. That's reaching a bit. I wrote in my review that this is the kind of episode that's probably more fun for the actors than it is for the audience. I'm using a very particular mindset when I'm approaching that comment because I'm just speaking for myself, but it's my review, so therefore I can say whatever I want because that's how I felt about the episode. I just found it tedious. And I remember when I was watching it the first time, it's one of those I was checking where we were in the episode and I thought, we're still at 35 minutes. Oh my God. (laughs) It wasn't one of my least favourite episodes. It was a middling tier episode for me because I just leaned into the fun of it. I completely understand where you're coming from where this was probably a lot of fun for the cast to do this episode. They were wearing ridiculous outfits. They were putting on silly voices. They were getting to be completely different characters because for this episode apart from the doctor and hammer they were all playing completely different characters in there i thought some of it was quite funny but at the same time you sit there and go oh really i was a bit like you with the first five ten minutes you're sitting there going what is going on this isn't a weird holodeck simulation he's not imagining it he's not in a coma this is meant to be really happening on the ship at this moment and it was just super weird the plastic plants and creating a forest through the <laughs> ship very off the wall and the thing is at the end it has that emotional beat like the reason this is being created and the reason for the characters to be going through this i think it would have made slightly more sense in my head if the daughter knew more of the crew like there was a reason that the daughter cast the crew as the characters that they were, because they're all character characters. I'm getting inception of yeah. uh, storytelling <laughs> here. If there was a reason that 
the Doctor's Daughter had cast each of those crew members as those characters. Not the Wizard of Oz thing of that each one of you is going to learn a lesson through this tale. Turned out you did have a brain all along. <laughs> that kind of thing. And you were there, and you were there, and you were there. You were there, and you were there, and you were there. It's almost like you needed that aspect of it to be Uhura, you could be in charge kind of thing. That's the reason that you've been put in this position. That's the reason you've been put in that position. You two work well together. Let's prove it with this story. That sort of aspect maybe could have worked better. In the end, I ended up just embracing it for the silly, but I can imagine that episode in particular would peeve a lot of people off. Also for the fact that you have spent a lot of time in other episodes, like you've said, sometimes to the detriment of other stories in those episodes, to do the arc with the Doctor's daughter only for it to be resolved in actually quite a silly episode if it was around about children in need comic relief time you know how normally they'll do a silly episode of a soap or they'll do a comedy skit in a thing it's almost like you could expect the little comic relief logo to be in the bottom corner <laughs> of this episode we've got the star trek people to do a special episode and here it is here's the reason why everyone's being a bit silly in this episode because otherwise it kind of stands apart from the other stuff that they've done. There's odd bits of humour that sometimes sat in these episodes and you go, really? After the pirate episode, you've got Pike doing a pirate impression as the end bit for the episode. And you sort of sit there and go, okay, this is a bit odd. And you've got Ortega, who is doing quite a lot of little side comments on the bridge the okay captain i'm gonna fly you into the big death cloud and stuff like that going on all on the bridge so you get those little lines every once in a while but that episode was just full-blown ridiculousness though i kind of had a bit of fun with it i'm sorry (laughs) it's your opinion yeah i had zero fun with it i just found it tedious pretty much from start to finish i'd be peeved if this was the kind of episode that happened every week but then when you think of i'm trying to think of the one where they end up in sherwood forest cupid cupid that's it you've got Worf standing there going i'm not a merry man and lines like that well those are still our characters in that situation so there's comedy in that yes it's still the characters the characters haven't been overwritten but it's a very silly premise sir i protest i am not a merry man and then there's a bit where geordie's playing the lute and he walks up and just smashes it against a tree and then just quietly says sorry and then walks back (laughs) where troy shoots data with an arrow that says your aim's improving or something like that yeah so there's comedy in there oh yeah like i say there's comedies in that in this as well i like hammer going what would a wizard say abracadabra (laughs) and you get the couple of abracadabras that he does and the distraction when he then beams them all out and does all this sort of stuff. That kind of made me laugh quite a bit. Well, the thing about this season is they seem to be running the gamut of Star Trek plots that you've seen in other shows. So we did the medical emergency episode. We did the silly altered reality episode. We did the comedy shore leave episode, etc. A lot of my reviews started with, Strange New Worlds does this kind of episode this week. So it seems like they were just trying out modern-ish takes on those types of episodes. Because that's kind of what they were doing, and there was almost a transparency to it. It's almost testing the waters to see if that kind of storytelling still worked. However, I don't think they quite modernised it in the way that they thought they were doing it. I think they were just creating those types of episodes, to be honest. I don't think they were necessarily pushing them in any way. The medical emergency one, they didn't do anything new with it. And I said that already. I rhymed off a bunch of shows that do similar episodes, even outside of Star Trek. But I do think that you're at the point with Star Trek episodes, though, and episode types, especially in this episodic format, it must be near impossible to come up with 
a 100% original one episode plot for Star Trek where not one element of it crosses over with something that's been done in another show. Oh, definitely. There's over 800 episodes. There's going to be plenty of overlap. There's over 800 episodes and the base premise is normally the same. I mean, they did Deep Space Nine, which was a departure to an extent because it wasn't they're on a starship going places. It was they're on a station going nowhere, but sometimes going through this wormhole thing. And then they altered it and they changed it in later seasons. But with the rest of the ones that are, we are following this ship doing stuff. Discovery has went off and done its own thing. Picard has went off and done its own thing, both to varying degrees of success. But for an episodic thing, any episode where you come up with, oh, this ship gets taken over by pirates... Everyone has their mind altered and does something else. We come across a new species that we struggle to communicate with. Any of those stories, it's like, oh, right, okay, yeah, we've done that one before. What's the alternate take on this one? Oh, it turns out they're robots this time. Oh, actually, we did that in this episode before. What about a different alternate take? They exist as pure light. Oh, yeah, we kind of done that one before. We discover them, but the only way they can interact with us is through the holodeck. Yeah, we kind of done that one. How do you manage to come up with something that is original to that extent. I think, like you say, yes, in this show, they can put a bit of new polish on it and they can do maybe slightly better special effects or they can do slightly better with this. And the difference is that you're seeing these characters facing it and their approach might be slightly different than other characters that you've seen approach it before. And that's the bit that they've got to try and make it interesting, especially for people like us that have watched the full canon that is available. It means that we are going to come across stuff that is very, very similar. I wonder if that is as much an issue. I would love to know. Unfortunately, my friend circle is probably not wide enough to have someone that would watch Strange New Worlds who hasn't watched any other Star Trek in order to get their take on this sort of stuff because it references bits of canon that you wouldn't know otherwise. It has episodes that, like you say, are based on other episodes or are very similar to other episodes. But if you didn't know it was that kind of episode, would you enjoy it just the same? Would you enjoy it more? Because you'd be like, oh, this is interesting. I wonder how this is going to pan out. Everyone on the ship's got an infection. There's no way that's going to be cured by the end of the episode. That kind of thing. No, I agree. I don't necessarily see it as a criticism of we're going to follow the templates of other Star Trek episodes. It's just somewhat obvious that that's what they were doing, I suppose. Structurally, it just felt like this is our version of the medical emergency episode. This is our version of that silly altered reality episode, etc., etc. I felt like I wanted them to push it a bit more and, and deliver a fresh take on it, which I don't feel like they necessarily did, certainly in most cases. In terms of my favourite episode of the season was the ninth episode. I thought that was excellent and... There are many reasons I thought it was excellent. Like I said earlier, it felt like a season finale, and in a way it was a season finale for the show that we were watching, because what it did was it did a temperature check on every character that had an arc in some way, except from Pike, funnily enough. The fact that he was on the away mission was actually pointless, because he doesn't do anything. He could have not been there, and the same would have been accomplished. You could have Laan in command of the mission, for example, and it would have been the same, because... All Pike does is, as he says, quarterback from the bridge. He doesn't do anything else. So, again, you could have had a, I'll face the Gorn, I am invincible. But he doesn't do that. (laughs) But I thought that episode was really good in the sense of, you pick up with Uhura, it mirrors the second episode. If it started with her log entry about, I'm near the end of my time on the Enterprise, and I still don't know what I want to do in my life. And Pike says, well, when you're ready to come back, you'll always have a place here. All very nice and supportive. And then... They have this 
distress call where they have to split the party. The Enterprise has to continue on, otherwise the thing that they're delivering to K7, which is a space station that is in the trouble of triples. So there's a reference for you there. The Enterprise has to continue on there, otherwise whatever they're delivering will break or be worthless by the time they get there. And Pike takes a couple of shuttles with the rest of the crew. So again, there's an episode that you could have used Una, but she's gone for most of it because she's on the Enterprise and you don't see the Enterprise until the end. It's a good idea to have the Enterprise be away for a few days because it isolates the away team. They can't escape. They're stuck where they need to be. But the funniest thing about that is that every character who can die except La'an dies. (laughs) Because we know everyone else makes it through. You've got Mbenga, you've got Chapel, you've got Pike, Ahura, Kirk's brother, because you know how he dies. They all survive. And it's the cadet, the new lieutenant, and Hemmer that die. So the only person whose fate is uncertain is La'an, but she lives. So she's the only character with a question mark that makes it back from that, which I thought was a bit bizarre, really, as a decision. You know, I brought the other cadet back as well, just to make it clear that we're all invincible. It's fine for us. But the episode was great. It references the thing. It references Alien. It references Aliens. It references even Alien 3, Hemmer jumping off the ship. That's a reference to Ripley doing that at the end of Alien 3. I really liked that they twisted the sets. They've done that a lot of times on Star Trek. We're going on a ship that's exactly the same as this one, so the interiors look the same, but we can twist them and light them differently and whatever. Think of Deep Space Nine whenever they went to Empok Noor. Yeah, we can take our station but turn it into a horror show. Fine, we can do that. So that's what they did. They had that line about, oh yeah, that ship, it's smaller, but it's built with the same parts as the Constitution i.e. we can use our sets and just light them differently and break them a bit and then we have a little haunted house for you to play in and that works really well all the cameras will be at jaunty angles it'll be fine no one will notice i really like that episode i think that would probably be my favorite from the season as well just because it was dark it was creepy you did feel fret for the characters being there like you say the whole point of the Enterprise can't be there to beam them out or send down more troops or whatever, because otherwise it would be, we've noticed that there's a problem, quick, send down two shuttles full of people with more guns. <laughs> you can't do any of that. So it added a bit more fret to the episode. It's like you say, okay, fine, we know that there's a certain number of characters there that are not going to perish in this particular episode, but it was still super creepy. Anything bursting out of a person is not nice to see that was very very creepy i think the little gorn they were just brutal the way that was going through i thought it was a very dark episode imagine that being the yeah uhura just to convince you to stay in starfleet let's take you on one last away (laughs) mission oh dear i don't know if that would solidify your decision to stay on the ship or not (laughs) whenever i go on an away mission this is i don't know if i fancy that what job do i want switchboard operator on the bridge seems quite safe i might do that i thought that was a good episode it played into what we had seen earlier on what was probably my second favourite episode. I think the two Gorn episodes were my favourites. The Gorn episode, which was the submarine analogy, is completely the wrong word. What was the episode called? Memento Mori. Memento Mori. That's it. I liked that episode as well. Again, it's one of those things where this is stuff that I've seen before when we talked about it, when we talked about that episode. A ship going into a gas cloud and they can't see, but the enemy can't see and they've got a little way of tracing them and they'll make it sound like a sonar ping from a submarine and we've only got two torpedoes left, but there's three ships, how are we going to do it? It's always that sort of stuff in the episode, but I thought it was a really well done episode. The fact it was tying in with a bit of character development and it was particularly timely because they're all thinking about people that have perished on past ships and crews 
issues that they've been on. So it was all that. It just sort of tied in quite well. So I enjoyed that episode. The only criticism from the ninth episode was the fact that Pike was really nonchalant about how everybody was going to be fine. It's, yeah, it's one last rodeo for the kids before we send them back to the academy. And then the two cadets die and this newly minted lieutenant dies and Pike doesn't reflect on it in any way at the end. Yeah, I guess that wasn't the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> he just kind of gets on with it. They mourn Hemmer, of course. Yeah. The others are shown, their pictures are shown, but it's Hemmer that we're focusing on. But the fact that Pike doesn't say, well, I was a bit arrogant here. I assumed this would be fine and it wasn't. Oops. I really shouldn't have taken the least experienced people. It was kind of a question on that one because we lost track of the ship, but we don't know what state it's in. Luckily, when it crash-landed, it crash-landed slightly gently and wasn't broken into pieces because otherwise that would have been an even worse situation for them down there. They were fortunate that the ship, it was, I can't remember what the phrasing was, but essentially it was, we'll replace a couple of circuit breakers and switch on the bridge controls and it'll take off. Well, that's convenient. <laughs> Maybe he should have been more remorseful at the funeral especially with Hemmer going, and they've established that they had quite a close relationship to all the key crew and the department heads. They normally have that extra bill in, so maybe he should have been more mournful about it. I thought it was a bit of a shame that Hemmer went. I liked Hemmer. He was a good character. He was, yeah, and it's a bit weird how little time he really had in the season. I do wonder if Bruce Horak was cast quite late, so they just slotted him into episodes here and there, and obviously gave him his focus and certain episodes because he's one of those that's missing for quite a lot of the season but he's a gruff engineer they're fun they're always fun types of characters and I thought his death had meaning to it and I liked the exploration of pacifism as well in the way that he conducted himself pacifism doesn't mean doing nothing that's not exactly what he says but it's along those lines it means doing what you can to protect life. In a lot of media, you get this whole anti-pacifism stance where it, oh, it's just people being cowardly. It's just people letting other people lay down their lives for them or whatever. No, it's an actual philosophy. It's a guiding principle that people live by and then there's ways that they make it happen. I think it's a bit skewed in that episode though because Hemmer's the one that pushes the button that kills the guard. So he does inflict harm. And they don't really go into the morality of what if I fix the weapons and then you use a torpedo to destroy the enemy ship? Yeah, that must be along the same lines of the logic that he was using there. Well, I'm not killing them. The cold will kill them. Well, I didn't fire the torpedo. I just lined it up. <laughs> it's like in that film Collateral, the Tom Cruise one. It's, you killed them? No, I shot them. The bullets in the fall, they killed them. <laughs> yes. The transitive property doesn't seem to apply there, I suppose. That's something they could have went more into. Apparently, Bruce Horak will be back next season in a different role. They haven't said what it will be, but they're not letting him go. His identical brother. <laughs> Gemmer. He's <laughs> also an Gemma engineer. He's <laughs> also an engineer with the exact same traits, yeah. But yeah, he was a good character. And he's your character that's a blank canvas. I know that any original series character is really a blank canvas because they didn't do very much with them. Chapel is a blank canvas because what was her divining trait in the original series? She was in love with Spock, which comes up here. That's it. What was Ahura's defining trait in the original series? She likes to sing. That's it. So they had plenty to play with there. Again, Pike, practically a blank slate. You had a season of him in Discovery, but you only have the cage to go on. And even then, you can be a bit squishy with that. You don't have to necessarily worry about it. The only character you're really bound by is Spock, because he's the one that receives hundreds of hours of attention. The fact that they get rid of, here's our character, was a bit limiting. And also, Ortegas doesn't get an awful lot to do over the season. No, I thought that was a bit of a shame, because I quite liked Ortegas. The snippy snide stuff that was coming over and the fun. But I don't know, maybe it's enough just being 
that to an extent because like i said at the beginning about tragic backstories and stuff you get all that with this character but then they'll suddenly do the oh but actually the reason that they do these snippy remarks is their tragic backstory (laughs) cue tragic backstory must be a shame for the actor though because she'll see every other cast member getting meaningful content in the scripts and she's like where's mine other than she gets to fight with a sword, I guess. Fingers crossed for the next season. It's not to the extent of some of the characters. We talked about it for Discovery. Discovery had what seemed to be a rotation system for the episodes last season, which was random bridge member, it's your turn to get a conversation in this episode. <laughs> Here you go. Here's your moment. Enjoy it. It will be your last for the remainder of the season. At least she was getting more than that. Yeah, you get a sense of who she is. Yeah, you get a sense and they are there. They are involved in what is going on. So I didn't have that much of a problem with it. Like I said before, you've got to almost accept the restraints of what's sitting there because of the number of episodes, because of what's going on and because of what the plot is in those episodes. What are you going to give Ortega to do more in this episode without detracting from all the other plates that you currently have spinning and do it well and if you can't do that is the best option to have what we had which is the character is there you are getting to find out a bit more about the character slowly maybe not as quickly as you are with the others but you can do that in the next season but again that might be to the detriment of another character that's missing well her being chummy with chapel and things like that was some nice little details and her little quips and remarks and things yeah you get a sense of personality even if you don't really know her as such whereas everybody else practically gets more to do apparently she does get an episode next season so the actress has been saying so we'll see how that works see that doesn't surprise me i think the fact that the character can be that casual with the captain i don't imagine ortega going down well on picard's bridge for example (laughs) you can imagine them getting on well with pike or even kirk's bridge i suppose Mm. Although we did know enough about her personality for it to stand out in the final episode where she was suddenly a bigot for some reason. Where did this come from? Where she was making all the negative remarks about Spock and the Romulans and so forth. The only good Romulans, a dead Romulan or whatever she says. And then she comments on the resemblance between Spock and the Romulans. Where did this come from? You just put her in this role because someone had to be in it. What, we were forwarding seven years or something, yeah. did they say? Seven years in the future. So we don't know what's gone on. In those seven years, I was kind of not treating anyone in that future timeline as the present characters because I don't know what's happened to them. Because the whole point is meant to be everything's slightly different. But adults don't tend to become bigots later on. No, but the whole point that you get with the neutral zone stuff at the outset of the episode is no one's seen a Romulan, no one's fought a Romulan. We've got this neutral zone, but essentially we're not interacting with them at all. However, with that seven-year forward flashback, you get the impression that there has been stuff going on with Romulans. There have been ships getting destroyed or stuff going missing or whatnot at that point. Who destroyed this? Who did that? Or who do you think you get from Ortega? So my interpretation of that was that there had been other stuff going on in that seven-year period. You're not taking it from... There's been no interaction with the Romulans whatsoever in the seven-year period in between. Yeah, well, I think they say in the episode we haven't encountered them in however long it's been. But I thought that was at the beginning of the episode where it was they were setting up the station in the neutral zone rather than in the seven-year. In the seven-year bit, they say that they don't know what the 
look like and there was a line about we don't know what their ships look like there's a bit of that going on so maybe but the bigotry thing i get what you're saying but i kind of took it as there's been other developments for that character in those seven years yeah or she has a family history of hating romulans or something like that that we don't know about i'm more thinking something has happened or something has been revealed in that seven year period because there's lots of characters that are acting slightly differently from how they were acting in the present inverted commas timeline so i just took it as part of that rather than this is that character they've suddenly got something against romulans and vulcans for whatever reason i'm not taking that for the current character unless proven otherwise they had that weird thing where it's like well for once me and spock could agree on something and i'm just sitting there thinking when have they been anything other than chummy and you saw one episode prior that she gave up heartwarming eulogy about an alien. Basically what happened is they took the lines that Styles in the original episode says and gave them a heart because she's there. That was why they did that, but it just seemed at odds to me. But the finale then, the Balance of Terror remake, what did you think of the finale? I was fine with it. I thought it was interesting to do a different Captain alt take. Uh, what would happen if a different Captain was in the chair? Story. Because you can imagine lots of different situations where you swap out Janeway for Cisco or Picard for Archer or whatnot. It's one of those theoreticals that you would sit around and discuss with another Trek fan is what would happen if the yeah. Captain was in that same situation. Would they fire all phasers or would they say, let's have a truce and here you get to see the writer's interpretation of what would go differently, albeit slightly augmented by the fact that it is a Pike who doesn't know any recent history who is making those decisions, rather than the actual Pike from that alternate timeline who is aware of the current situation. So you've got to put a certain amount of... It's actually not quite the same in there. I thought it was okay. It was to try and get them to an end point of that story of I should change the timeline and I can swap all this round. It had to explain what the consequences were because without him seeing the consequences in a similar way to how he saw the consequences of what was going to happen in his future, he had to see the fact that actually this is an impact and it's a bigger impact. And for the fans, it's kind of a little nod wink to the fact that not only is the fact that he's there making a difference is the fact that it's not Kirk who's interacting with his crew making a difference on them and making a difference to other decisions and things that have happened in the ship's past. So I, I thought it was quite interesting as an episode. I was conflicted about it. When I first watched it, I was thinking to myself, I'm going to have to reflect on this and then watch it again before I write anything about it. Because it was very deliberately trying to push particular buttons with people like me that are big fans of the original series and balance of terror is one of the if you ask anybody to rank not even just episodes of the original series episodes of star trek it'll be on a lot of people's top 10 because it is so good it's one of the classics it's again submarine warfare in space and it really works it doesn't matter that the special effects are crap because it's about how they managed to frame that situation. In the first, I don't know, 10 minutes of the episode, you have Old Pike wearing a Wrath of Khan era uniform. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, yeah, I know exactly what you're doing to me here. You're trying to throw imagery at me that I like. And then he puts his hand in the time crystal and he's officiating the wedding. And it's, oh God, he's in balance of terror. And then at that point of the episode, I thought, okay, are we going to go through just a montage of original series plots? Here's why you will make the decision that 
produces the worst outcome every time sort of thing. And they didn't. They stuck with Balance of Terror. Maybe every season he'll doubt his future and the finale will be his future self coming back saying, <laughs> I'm going to show you another situation and it'll be another episode of the original series. For God's sake, Chris, have you not learned this already? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. We've been through this. After a few days of thinking about it, he's like, but what if I change this? Then the future's created. He's like, oh God, I couldn't do this again. Stupid past me. Come on. I change the timeline, but I keep Spock in transporter state. <laughs> <laughs> but that just means someone else dies or gets gravely injured when trying to repair the weapons. Yeah, but I'm all right with that. I don't like them. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't know them. It's fine. Have you learned nothing? It's the give me a million pounds, but someone I don't know will die. I don't care. I don't know them. That's what all these episodes have been. It's to justify when he's quite happy to sacrifice anyone but Spock. Yeah, pretty much. It's the only person he likes. So pushing that particular button was very deliberate. So I don't have the perspective, and maybe you do have this perspective, I don't know if you have seen or what familiarity you have with Balance of Terror, because I've seen it like a million times. I could play any part in it, pretty much. It's that ingrained in my brain, I've seen it. So watching that, and I was thinking, does this work if you haven't seen Balance of Terror? Because it seems to riff on it a lot. A lot of the dialogue is lifted exactly. I suppose the difference is Pike hasn't seen Balance of Terror, so he doesn't know how it plays out. But he's sitting there knowing that whatever decision he makes will result in something horrible. That's why he's there. And Spock even gives him that advice. You just have to behave normally because you need to learn this lesson. And Pikes says, yeah, sure, I'll just do that. But the thing is, he's not going to behave normally because he already knows that he's under some kind of test. It's changing the outcome by measuring it. As much as he would think he's behaving normally, he might not be because he'll always be second-guessing himself. And even throughout the episode in his log and so forth, he says, is Kirk the problem here? Am I going to have to watch out for him? So he's always asking questions as he goes. Maybe it would have been more effective if they'd been like ghosts on the bridge watching the events play out. So he sees himself playing the part. Yeah, so like a ghost of Christmas future kind of thing where you're getting shown, but he can't interact. Yeah. I mean, it's not as visceral, of course. Yeah, he can follow himself about, but he can interact with it. That maybe would have made a bit more sense, I think. Rather than, I know nothing about the last seven years, but I'm just going to be in command of the ship. That's fine. Yeah, I don't know the current situation, who all my crew are, who all the bridge people are, I don't know what's going on. And lots of the crew give weird glances when he's asking about, where's Una? Where's this? Where's that? When did you last hear from Una? As much as he comes clean to Spock, he doesn't come clean to anyone else. The whole time he's smooth jazz improvising it because he doesn't know what else is going on in the situation. And for him, he doesn't feel any fret in that situation because it's well actually i'm just going to magically appear back as far as he knows the rules are that if he dies in there he just wakes up back in his present day that's the lesson you've learned the lesson you died and now you get transferred back something horrible is going to happen but the whole point is that this timeline can't happen so therefore i just have to learn why it can't happen so therefore i just let the horrible thing happen or i can't prevent the horrible thing from happening because it's down to how i would behave if they'd done that as in, he doesn't know anything about the last seven years. But the thing is, as you said, there's been changes on the ship. They're not our character. Spock is far more all business, isn't he? He's all Vulcan, really. Mm. He's largely how he was in the original series at that point. There's a definite shift in his personality. Ortega's is a bigot for some reason. Ahura, well, she just answers the phone, really. She doesn't do much else. So you don't know how much she's changed. Chapel is there, but she doesn't appear till the end. And so on. So if he'd seen himself, he might have seen over those seven years, he loses a bit of that sparkle. Because everyone seems a bit dour. Mm. Everyone seems a bit less in love with life, as he's used to. So it'd be like, what happens to me that I become so miserable over those seven years, that kind of thing. Or you could have had it the other way, where someone like Ortegas or Ahura is, what's wrong with the captain? He's not acting like himself, because they're maybe used to a more 
cynical Pike that has appeared over those seven years. They could have done that in those ways, but he just seems to be accepted. And Spock realistically should have just taken command because you have no idea what has gone on the last seven years. That is a massive liability. You don't know any of the current protocols, what's going on. I suppose it makes sense in the context of the situation because no one's encountered the Romulans at all, so anybody's reacting to it for the first time. But still, it's problematic in a few ways. And I think sticking so slavishly to the script of Balance of Terror is problematic in that way because, again, it is that transparent fan service. It's very clear what they're trying to do. It's very clear what Mm. they're aiming at. So my first question is this. How well do you know the episode Balance of Terror? Not that well. Not that well. Okay. Do you think this story works without it then? Yeah, I would say it works because I know enough. I know exactly what the idea is, is that you're seeing Pike making the different decisions from Kirk. You're getting to see the differences between the captains. Like I said earlier on, it's the hypotheticals of if you put Cisco on Voyager when it goes into the Badlands instead of Janeway, that kind of thing. How does a different crew react? And that's what you're getting. I think it works. I think if you don't know that it's a take on actual decisions that Kirk made because that's never explicit in the episode. If you were to take it completely in isolation from Star Trek, which, let's face it, probably no one is, but if you're taking it from the point of view that you know now, you've wandered into Strange New Worlds as your first Star Trek thing, you'd be wondering what all the interest is in the captain of the Farragut. What's the focus on this other captain in the future? Without your knowledge of the other episode, you don't know that Pike is taking the same decisions that Kirk would have done on the Enterprise, because that's never explained. Future Pike sits there and says about how Spock goes on to do these amazing, wonderful things, but he never says, oh, and Kirk is the one that would have replaced you, so instead of him being used for this, he's going to go off and do blah blah that double act needs to happen in order for lots of other things to happen he's left with the question of what if we tried it kirk's way how would this have played out i suppose rather than being explicitly told yeah kirk had the right idea because kirk advised him and says i I think you should shoot him captain but you're in charge it's your ship so kirk doesn't get to make that call so he's sitting there going oh well if kirk had been in the seat he would have made this decision but pike isn't saying that from the point of view of knowing if he had had his accident that it would have been Kirk in charge of his ship. As far as he knows, it would have been a another captain that would have been on the Enterprise and Kirk would still have been on the Farragut. And in a way, the events of this is probably what enables Kirk to be in command of the Enterprise because at the end of the episode, he thinks, I'm going to watch this guy. So he's probably going to support his career and manoeuvre him into being a successor. Yeah, you've got the potential of this was always, okay, are we going for the predestiny again thing, which is Pike always knew that he was going to have this fate. That way of doing it. So it's him that puts... Kirk on the short list to replace him. If something happens to me, I recommend Kirk. He sits and he has that conversation with Kirk in the future. We've already talked about the problem of Pike knowing stuff that he shouldn't already. So he knows the crew that are going to be with him. He knows the date that the explosion's going to happen. And now he's been shown seven years in the future is when the Romulans are going to start coming out of the neutral zone. He's sat down and had a drink with Kirk and found out more about him and could have asked him any number of different questions. Has been in charge of the Enterprise seven years in the future and seen whatever he has seen or overheard whatever he has overheard while he's been there. The ship's still reacting to his command. He can still access anything that he wants. And there's no impression that that memory, that information has been erased from him when he goes back. Granted, it's an alternate future to a limited extent, but the big stuff 
is still going to play out the same. Yeah, but the lesson is he has to just let the future play out as it should. The whole point is I'm not going to change anything. Yes. But he's resolving to give Kirk a wee boost in his career. Yeah, exactly. But now he's looking up Kirk and going to go, oh, actually, that Kirk guy, he was pretty good. Maybe I should speak to that Kirk guy and give him some career advice in case he makes some bad mistakes. I'll take Kirk under my wing because when I had that conversation with him, he told me that his career would have moved faster if he hadn't made that one mistake or that one thing that he did wrong or that conversation that he wishes went the other way or blah, 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 blah. It seems that he is manipulating that. The resolution for him in my head is almost, I can't make sure that my accident doesn't happen, but I can tinker with other stuff. It's like the full lesson hasn't been learned. It doesn't explicitly state what he plans to do with Kirk. So it could just be that he's just going to keep an eye on him. Just keep an eye on his career. Just follow it. Yeah, he's just going to have tabs on him every once in a while, open his file and read a mission briefing. I understand that, but the impression that I'm getting from the fact that he is a key cast member in the next season is that that's not really the case. Considering that we were already talking about him knowing too much, I think having such an intimate detail of seven years in the future is worrying without the show doing a bit of hand wavy even if future pike had been like here's a way to raise all your knowledge of everything so that you don't get tempted to change it this is the solution the solution that we've come up with me and the time monks is that in order to make sure there is absolutely no deviation from the timeline you need to not know your future there's all sorts of different readings of this whole situation. A really cynical one that I saw was about how, well, the only right decision is Kirk's decision, or the only right Star Trek is Kirk's Star Trek, that kind of thing. He's the only important character sort of thing. But I took it very differently to that. I looked at it as, Kirk is a more gung-ho cowboy captain. He always has been. That's his thing. I think that his brother misrepresents him, and this is something that always happens with Kirk. He gets misrepresented as this reckless rule-breaker, where that's not what he was. In the original series, he's very careful with how he follows protocol and so forth, and then whenever he talks about being at the Academy, he talks about being grim and studious. So I think the characterization of the Chris Pine Kirk has been what's become accepted when that's not really it. Kirk is a professional. He's good at what he does. He's so good that he got promoted to captain younger than anyone else in Starfleet ever had been. That's how good he is. And I feel like that misrepresents him. Of course, this whole, oh yeah, he's reckless and he doesn't like to lose, etc., etc. That is an alternate future. So the Kirk that we meet next season will likely be different because time plays out in different ways, probably. But I feel like they might lean into him being reckless and just stumbling onto the right decision, so to speak. But if you go back and watch Balance of Terror now, you will see how careful Kirk is. You'll see how considered his decisions are. It's not that they get there and his immediate reaction is just shoot them. He thinks about it carefully because just like Pike, he knows that if he makes the wrong call, it will plunge them into war. That's what he knows. That's something that's on his mind the entire time. And the reading, at least here, is that Pike's approach is different, but they both want the same thing. Just Pike tries the diplomatic approach. And... That works on the Romulan commander to a degree. He talks about being tired of war. He understands Pike's point about, we're still fighting a war that our ancestors fought and neither of us know what it's about. So why don't we just chill out, take a couple hours and then we'll see if we want to kill each other then. And there was a real dialogue there. And obviously the Romulan Praetor saw that as a sign of weakness and invaded. So it's actually very similar to a plot we saw in Discovery. The very first episode, Vulcan Hello, Burnham's point about, we have to attack the Klingons because that's the only thing they'll respect. That's the only thing that will prevent war here. If they see us as not being weak, they won't attack. And that's 
the same approach with the Romulans here, as in in Balance of Terror, they sent their ship to test the water, see how strong the Federation might be, and the fact that their ship doesn't come back makes them think twice and wonder, maybe we'll wait a bit before we invade, maybe we'll gather more information. Whereas here, they see this attempt at diplomacy as being a sign of weakness. So they see that as an excuse to attack. That's fine. And Pike's diplomatic approach would have worked if everybody was on the same page as the Romulan commander. Unfortunately, he's more progressive than the rest of them. His new age thinking is the problem here. As far as the Romulans are concerned, they're not ready to think along those lines yet. And they see the Federation as a joke. So therefore, they declare war. And I'm reminded of a famous Picard quote where he says, and this relates to Pike in this episode, he says, it's possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. That's what Pike's doing there. He's making the right decision as far as he sees it, based on his experience, based on his aspirations, I suppose. And it turns out to be the wrong one in that moment. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't read the situation incorrectly. He just approached it differently to Kirk. And it's interesting, the notion of how fragile history can be. We look at it in our own history as well. If decisions had been made in different ways by, say, Churchill or whoever during World War II, things would have been very different. If Pearl Harbor didn't happen, we might be speaking German right now because Pearl Harbor was this instrumental moment that brought the Americans into the war and helped turn the tide over a long period of time, but it did, and so on. So you could look back at any historical moment and think, oh, if that person had just made that slightly different decision, where would we be? And that's what this is. That's what this scenario is. And the idea is, Kirk didn't know that his show of force would work, because it's possible that the Romulans might have turned around and said, you destroyed our ship, we're declaring war. Or it's possible that the Federation Council might have got wind of what had happened here and said... You attacked our outposts. We're declaring war. Those two things could have happened. So again, Kirk was only operating under the information that he had at the time. And he had to make a decision because he couldn't contact anybody for advice. He attacked there and then. And that was the choice he made. And it turned out to be the one that prevented war. Whereas Pike's more diplomatic solution just wasn't the right one at the time. And that's all it is, at least as far as I see. You've covered that rather well. So I think I won't stumble all over it. (laughs) I agree with you. Pike's approach was very pike i wouldn't say it was tempered by the fact that he had traveled in time that would probably have been the exact same response he would have given if a a romulan ship had popped up during the episode in real time rather than in the future i don't think there was any alternate take on that that he would try for a peaceful solution and if it had worked you get the romulan commander of the ship who's going i'm tired of war as well maybe we will get a peaceful solution out of this or at least this incursion will be peaceful a bit late after destroying a couple of space stations and stuff but fair enough we're going to go into the sunset and goodbye it's only the people on his crew that are like yeah no we're just going to call everyone else and say that they're pretty much ready to surrender if we attack yeah, the sub commander is the one that scuppers it yeah the sub commander's like i just said to the admiralty come over here let's invade shall we there's a lot of different circumstances that need to go into play and i wouldn't say that it proves that anyone was right or wrong it's like a in theory here's what would have happened You've swapped out Pike on Enterprise. If you swapped out that sub-commander on the Romulan ship at the same time, would you have got a different outcome? It's that sort of conundrum of you turn left instead of right and what ends up happening down the road. I thought it was interesting as an episode. It was mainly to give a resolution to Pike not changing the timeline. I just think it 
raises quite a few questions as well. I agree with you that it's probably, we've talked about fan service through the show and putting little teasers and stuff in as simply fan service. This is probably a massive piece of fan service. It was relentless, the dialogue lifting. The fact that you're taking and lifting so much from the episode probably plays into that, but the whole idea, I guess, is meant to be that almost everything is identical apart from the captain, which is why you're getting dialogue placed into the wrong character's mouths, if you get what I mean, because they're trying to say everything's the same, it's the captain that's different. Even Pike was regurgitating some of Kirk's dialogue as well. That's kind of where I think they were going with it. I thought it was interesting. I didn't think it was a bad episode. I didn't think it was a bad story. I don't think Pike trying to come to terms with his future is over as a thing yet. Okay, I hope it is. I'm with you. I hope it is. But like I say, I kind of wish that the outcome of this was memory erasure or something like that to stop it being a thing, to guarantee it not being a thing. But maybe that would have raised more questions because you've got some people that do know apart from him. It's not just him. It would need to be... By the way, Spock, if I ask you about this future, don't mention it to me ever again. Keep another secret for me. That kind of conversation. How many different people know that he knows that? future. So I like the episode in the main. I feel like they could have lifted less from Balance of Terror directly. I think they could have gotten the spirit of the situation without just regurgitating the same script practically and just putting Pike in Kirk's place and really playing up the whole differences in command style thing. And something we should talk about is, what did you think of Kirk? I feel like the Kirk was similar enough. There's maybe something a bit more gung-ho about him than you would expect from the original series version that was in Bounds of Terror. But other than that, the introduction actually really worked for me. I'm sure I told you, when you're watching the episode, just look away during the opening credits. Otherwise, it will spoil his appearance. Because you know that Paul Wesley's playing Kirk, so... You'll see his name in the credits and be like, God, he's in this episode then. And I was fortunate when I first watched the episode that I was not paying attention at the opening credits. I was looking away, I was doing something else. I didn't see it, so the Kirk reveal worked because when they talk about what ship is in the area, it's the Farragut. Well, that's Lan's ship. And I was just thinking, all right, Lan will be in command of that ship and they'll do that. Okay. And then it was the captain of the Farragut is hailing us. Who is it? It's James Kirk. And I was like, oh my God, they're actually doing it. And then he shows up on screen. I found that reveal really worked. I don't know if you remembered my advice to look away during the opening credits or not. I didn't notice his name in the opening credits. After they had announced his casting and the fact that they announced his casting before the season aired, I was kind of I'm expecting something. I wasn't expecting him to fully feature in an episode to the extent that he did. I thought he would be a video call to his brother or something like that. There'd be a weird reason for him to feature in a very small thing. I wasn't expecting him to star in an episode. I thought it was a fair introduction. You've obviously got to take in a little bit of the alt-future question mark stuff. But I thought he was enough James T. Kirk for me. I thought he did all right. It's always weird watching different actors do these sort of performances and this is his take on it. So I don't think I can fault it too much. Obviously because he's not in charge of the Enterprise at the time, stuff like that, you're seeing a different thing. He's quite strategic, he's quite smart, going off and getting the mining vessels. When he goes, kind of borrow a shuttle and disappear off, you're like, what's he going to come back with? What's he going to do in a shuttle to get back up? Getting the mining drone ships because they don't know what our ships look like either. But they have sensors. They probably have sensors and can look and go, it's very lightly armoured and has low shielding and whatnot. No weapons. No weapons we can detect. What if they've got secret weapons, hidden weapons? You've got to have a little bit of suspension of disbelief, but I kind of liked it. It showed that he was 
fine to embrace Pike's plan, but was wise enough to go, you're right with me going off and arranging a backup. If you keep me in the loop, I'm going to go off and do this backup. It was when Pike did the diplomatic olive branch approach and Kirk's like, oh, nice touch. I wouldn't have thought of that. The camaraderie that existed between them. And there was the, what's your name again? Mr. Spock. Okay. I remember that. I like this guy. It's also Kirk that's not tempered by Spock and McCoy as well. So there's that to think about because they're a big influence on his life and his decision making and so forth. McCoy ain't there. So he's not going to be thinking the same way. And the thing is, the briefing room scene, that exists in Balance of Terror as well, except it's Kirk with his crew asking for opinions. What do you think we should do? And Spock is one of the people saying we should attack. And he uses the shared ancestry between Vulcans and Romulans as a reason for that because he says something about we had our savage times and we really shouldn't underestimate them. But it really stood out to me how similar to Vulcan Hello it is in terms of here's your choices. We can attack or not, and they will probably respect us attacking more than not. So we should do that. So there's a bit of recycling going on there, I suppose. Yeah, but is that partially knowledge? Now that you know that story from before that we didn't know about the start of that war, does that add a bit more context to where Spock goes, this race is like the Klingons and as it's like our own history, then this is essentially him making the same decision that Burnham did or coming to a similar realisation to what Burnham did. Well, not even that. As a Vulcan, he will know about the concept of the Vulcan hello, won't he? Or as... Burnham called it. I don't imagine the Vulcans call it that, but that's what she called it. So he will know that we spent hundreds of years trying to talk to the Klingons and we just had to attack them every time so that they would respect us, that kind of thing. But So that could inform some of that. In terms of the Kirk casting, I really like Paul Wesley's portrayal. I did have it in mind that this ain't the Kirk we're going to see, not completely anyway. So we'll see a different one that is our Kirk, in inverted commas. And it's one of those things, whenever you see someone embody such an iconic role, you're kind of watching them to see if you recognise anything in them. We had that with Han Solo, we had that with the two new Spocks that we've had, the other new Kirk we've had. Although, I think the J.J. Abrams movie versions of these characters, it was easier to just run with them because they're not supposed to be the original versions. They're riffs on them, they're from a different timeline, so they are different. So I wasn't expecting them to be the same. And I think we had an easier introduction to Spock in season two of Discovery because when you first see him, he has the beard and he's acting differently. So he's not Spock when you first meet him, effectively. It's not until later on where he shaves. And until you get to this show, really, that you start trying to see a bit of Nemo in him and see if that exists. But I said on We Made This, We Are Starfleet episode about the finale. To my mind, Paul Wesley's not playing Shatner, he's playing Kirk. And that's a key difference here because it's... When you're embodying an iconic character like that, do you play the actor playing that character or do you play the character? Do you look at a casting sheet? Do you look at the traits that you're supposed to embody and say, boom, 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 here's what I'm going to hit here? We already had this conversation about Superman and Lois, but it was something I saw recently. Tyler Hecklin said that he hasn't watched any other Superman content and he won't until he finishes playing the role because he wanted to make his own Superman. I don't know how true that is. How has he got through life without seeing at least... One of the Christopher Reeve movies. Yeah, I'm calling bull. <laughs> I think what he possibly means by that is I haven't watched them in the context of studying the character. So he maybe has seen other takes, but not with that mindset. Yeah, I think exactly. And I think you're right. It's actually a really good way of putting it. Do you play Kirk or do you play the more famous interpretation of do you try and mimic speech patterns and performance do you do what kevin pollock did because don't do that yeah do you try and duplicate it do you play it up to that extent and i think they're probably going down the better path very similar with 
playing Spock as well? Do you try and mimic bits of performance? And I suppose there's odd things you can do, but I would rather that they did their own take on the character rather than try to completely copy a performance, especially if the intention is for the character to run for a way longer amount of time. I think you can get away with mimicking a performance if it's a one-episode bit-part run of that character, then you can maybe get away with it. If the intention is that this character is going to appear a lot, and obviously they knew they were doing that with Spock when they first cast and put stuff in, then you need to do it as if you're going to be playing this character for the rest of your life. You can't play it like you're going to do a Nimoy impersonation for the rest of your life. I don't think for an actor that would be satisfactory. I don't think for viewers it would be satisfactory either. And I think Paul Wesley's probably went in with that same point of view. Play it as if you're intending to have this character for the rest of time. That you're going to have as much of a run at this character as anyone else has had. Because if you went in and you just did an impersonation or just mixed performance, then I don't think it would work. I think folk would see right through it. Now, whether there are casting tapes or attempted edits or whatnot at doing that, and it's like, yeah, this doesn't work. Strip it back, strip it back. Okay, there you go, you've got it. Maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's been workshopped, maybe it hasn't. I'd be interested to hear, and I'm sure we will at some point, of what goes in. Yeah, the process. The process, yes. That's the way of saying it. But I imagine there has been some watching of performance. Again, it's a bit like Superman. It's impossible to get through your life without seeing some Shatner somewhere. It's an impossibility because of the references elsewhere. Even if you sit and you go, I've never watched a movie or an episode or whatnot. The fact that Star Trek gets riffed elsewhere as well and Shatner gets riffed elsewhere as well means it's impossible to say, oh yeah, I'm unaware. Well, the Superman example is not a great one in some ways because Tyler Hecklin's not playing a prequel to the Christopher Reeve version or anything like that. He's playing yeah, I get a, that. a completely fresh take on the character, whereas Paul Wesley, he's playing season one Kirk, but different season one Kirk in this episode. And when he appears again, he'll be playing him seven years younger. So he's not that Kirk yet anyway. He's got seven years of growth to go through. Same with Spock. So there is that freedom there in that respect. But also, you have to have in mind that this is where I need to get to. This is where my character's going. I think Shatner and Nimoy are bigger than the franchise in a lot of ways. And there's no getting around Mm. the portrayals of them. So I think they'll have to bear that in mind to some extent. In fact, we heard Ethan Peck talk about that at the convention. He was talking about how he did study Nimoy's performance. And he tried to get some of the affectations, but do his own little spin on them and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's part of your job as an actor. If you're playing a character, you need people to believe that you're that character. And I did believe that Paul Wesley was Kirk. And there is a comment about him that I do agree with. He's not blonde enough. <laughs> Shatner was very blonde early on. He's got dark hair, does Paul Wesley. So that segues us naturally into season two. So what do we expect from season two? We're definitely going to see Kirk again in some capacity. What that capacity will be, I don't know. That's what I talked about earlier with the Pike-Kirk connection. We talked about it in the news podcast whenever Paul Wesley was cast and about how, oh, it's too early for Kirk. Kirk and Pike never met and so forth. And it's one line of dialogue in one episode of the original series where Kirk says, I only met him once when I took the Enterprise off him. Like I said earlier, I'm happy for them to ignore that because I want to see Anson Mount and Paul Wesley interact. And I would hate for us to lose that opportunity because they're adhering to that one line of canon that was never written with this in mind. Yeah, I think we discussed it before, I think on one of the news podcast when he was cast it seems a bit of a waste or how you're going to crowbar it so that he's in the show 
but he's never interacting with Pike. It just seems implausible, so I think that line is going to be ignored, maybe, constructively. Whether folk will stomp their feet and cry and cry and cry, maybe. But, like I said earlier on, they've given Spock a sister. They've done other bigger things out there than letting Pike and Kirk have a chat or interact a bit more before he takes over. It's almost like that chat they have in that episode is a cheat, isn't it? It's the, well, it's alternate timeline future. It's an alternate timeline. And if this was the only episode that they were going to do and they hadn't cast him in the next season, you would say that's their get-out clause, is that he's still not going to interact with Pike. And you could still try and crowbar it where Pike is keeping an eye on Kirk and stuff, but he doesn't interact with him he purposefully is avoiding him because of whatever reason and instead it's other members of the enterprise crew who are interacting with him could do that but i would feel cheated without the two of them interacting other stuff for the season i don't know obviously we've got the stuff with una and that investigation or whether they're going to try and break her out or whether they're going to let her go down we're going to get a new chief engineer not scotty possibly who knows? I mean, they did the voice of Scotty in the finale. Yeah, it's just, I was going to say, just a voice actor. It's a bit of a placeholder. Yeah, it's a placeholder Scottish accent. A bad Scottish accent, we have to clarify. <laughs> it was a Scottish accent of some form. <laughs> that was a bit of fan service thing going, oh, look, Scotty, something you're saying. Yeah. I was kind of like, why do you do that? You can say that anything else is different because Pike's there. Pike hired a different engineer. I don't know why you would throw scotty in there unless that was a teaser for well we killed off the chief engineer this season so we're getting scotty next season i don't think they will yet we've talked a lot already about how there's a problem with putting the original series characters in not that scotty has tons of backstory and stuff sitting there for you but again it's another character that you can't do tons with because you need to get to another fixed point again so i would probably assume that they're going to avoid that but we're going to get a new chief engineer i don't know there's lots of stuff that they could do the fact that it is this episodic and they've not gone for a big bad they've kind of introduced the gorn as a threat i imagine we're going to get a little bit more gorn in the next season maybe not two episodes but i imagine they will crop up cyborg we're about to get cyborg they've teased cyborg so yeah well, they haven't cast him yet. They made sure to show the back of an extra's head with long hair. That's another thing that concerns me because of the... Spock is a serial family denier, but it turns out that he ran up against his half-brother at some point in the past. He didn't say that he didn't, I suppose, but at the same time, do we really need this? It feed into his arc in some way because it's a representation of something he could be, as in the full rejection of his Vulcan side, because that was Cyborg's thing. He was an emotional, passionate Vulcan. But I wonder if they'll bring in his quest to find God and all that nonsense that he was doing in Star Trek V. Again, that's a problem. You do Cyborg, but... We know how he ends up, so we know that even his defeat, it has to be, well, he'll be seen later. It'll be kind of an unsatisfying defeat, probably, because he has to slink off and be seen later. That's why I'm a bit like, why include some of these things? Well, I know exactly why they include them. Fan service and whatnot, as you say, and gets people talking about the episodes and pontificating about what's going to happen. But you sit there and go, that's an episode or an arc of episodes or three episodes or whatever that you could do a new interesting story with the characters that you've introduced rather than picking on something that you can fit in technically because it's a gap in the lore or this line was a bit ambiguous so we can get away with it but you could tell different stories yeah 
Definitely. I would say some of the strongest stuff in this season has been the things that were not based around original series canon. Yeah, definitely. The episodes that we picked were new. Yes, you've got some characters from the original series in it because it's unavoidable at this point, but it wasn't playing with key bits out of the original series. It wasn't as fan service For sure. So on that note, we could probably wrap up. I think we've covered things quite extensively. So what are your final wrap-up thoughts on Strange New Worlds Season 1? Really enjoyed Season 1. Looking forward to Season 2. Okay, that is pretty succinct. Basically the same for me. I really like it. Like the characters. Love it as Star Trek. Love the concept, of course. One comment I meant to make earlier about the body switching is there is kind of a meta commentary on the fact that Ethan Peck gets to play in a role where he's walking in someone else's shoes, which I thought was very funny. And for those that don't understand what I mean by that, his grandfather Gregory Peck played Atticus Finch and that was his philosophy about understanding people after you've walked a mile in their shoes. Ah, okay. And then you either understand them or you're a mile away and you've got their shoes, whichever. So that's something we're thinking about. But yes, very good show. Not without its problems. And hopefully they can iron out some of the kinks in season two. I am worried about the increased relentlessness of fan service, especially with Kirk becoming a more prominent fixture. We've got Cybok in the offing, etc, etc. So I'm concerned about that. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're building up to original series reboot of some sort. I don't think they've just hired Paul Wesley as a temporary fixture for the franchise. I feel like they want to find something to do with him after all this is over, whenever that may be. I suspect that as well. I don't think Strange New Worlds is going to be the end of the road for these interpretations of the character. Yeah, or you just keep Strange New World going, keep calling it that, but you just swap out the cast, including the captain, just gradually. It would not surprise me, as much as we've talked about them not adding too many more of the original series crew, it wouldn't shock me for odd characters to pop in, even if they do not become permanent members of the crew at that point, but to discover or check in with different original series crew members and by the end of this or by whenever it transforms that we do have pretty much the original series crew on the bridge apart from a few characters. Ortegas gets promoted and goes to another ship and stepping in is Sulu! Here he is! Exactly, and who's going to replace them? Or who's the understudy for Ortega who then steps in or appears in a couple of episodes because they're in training or whatnot. But we shall see. That was our discussion about Strange New Worlds Season 1. That is Star Trek Strange New Worlds Season 1 to use its full title. Chris, thank you very much for showing up for this long discussion. This long-awaited discussion as well. This long, long long-awaited discussion. (laughs) I want to thank the Orchestra Cinematique for the supplied music. If you like what you heard, then please do subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts. Usually on some of these apps anyway, there is a rating option. Apple Podcasts and Spotify offer it. And they offer it in the way of stars. Like the Enterprise flies between. Chris, how many stars would you like them to press? All five stars. Five stars, yes. And you could leave a comment as well. If you want to discuss Star Trek, Strange Worlds, Star Trek in general or anything else you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk and as always we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before 